My name is Paul Waller and I am a horror movie addict. During 2020, the workload for my music industry job slowed right down and at the same time, I discovered the movie social networking platform, Letterboxd. So I decided to fill in the gaps of my horror film knowledge and I'm still averaging just over two a day now. This podcast is a result of that horror compulsion. This is a year in horror. Hooray, hooray, it's New Year's bloody day. Hello, how you doing? This is Paul, I'm back. Happy New Year. I hope you got what you wanted for Christmas. And if you didn't, or maybe you don't celebrate Christmas, well, I'm very sorry I've put my foot in it there. Also, that would probably mean that you didn't get much out of last month's best Christmas horror movie of all time show either. Although I did get several emails from you lot that did enjoy it, so thank you for that. I was hesitant to do it as it breaks from that regular formula a little bit, but I do want to keep things fresh here, and I know eventually that I am going to run out of years to cover. Uh, And I think if I have no breaks, it finishes in 2027. So it's still quite a long time. What am I worried about? Nothing. Anyway, amongst those emails... I do want to say just a quick word to someone that I'm just going to call Jigsaw for reasons that are going to become very clear in a moment. And the only reason I'm calling them Jigsaw is because they mentioned that Saw was one of the first horror films that they ever watched. Anyway, I know from personal experience that Christmas time can be pretty awful for people that have abusive parents or abusive partners. And your email proper broke me up. And I just wanted to mention to you and to anyone else out there that I've also been through a very similar situation. There are multiple avenues and charities that you can reach out to for help. And if you ever want to use them, they'll always be there for you. They were for me and I'm ancient. And things have improved so much in the last couple of decades. They'll put you right. So when you mentioned in your email that last month's show brought that little bit of light into your life, well, it just made me well up. I just think real bullies can do one. And Jigsaw, I truly hope things work out better for you soon. Right, that was a lot. Let's lighten this bit up, shall we? I just wanted to get that out there. How about I advertise my wares for a moment? Yep, yep, yep. I think we're going to do that. So A Year in Horror has a Patreon page. Of course we do. And I want to say again, thank you so much if you've already joined. But if you haven't, here's what's happening over there right now. If you join at the £4 tier, then you can support the show whilst listening to a stack of extra content, which includes just this ton of deep dives on each movie from the video Nasty tier list. I've recently added uh, Cannibal Apocalypse, Zombie Flesh Eaters, Tenebrae, SS Extermination Camp to the list. We've also begun to explore the Amateurville Horror Series over there. I mean, there's only 53 films to deal with coming up there at the moment. It's easy. 
But there's also chats about Scream, chats about Nope, Matriarch, many more. There's a monthly radio show. There's some AMAs as well. There is a ton of stuff. I'm always adding shows to that pile every single month. Patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. Thank you in advance. Paul, he's getting dressed. He can't find a t-shirt. Paul, what you gonna wear? Will it be a large t-shirt? Mr. Puggles, what do you think, Mr. Puggles? But for now, you have clicked on this episode of the podcast and I am about to deliver to you part one of the 1969 rundown. This was the year in cinema that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid reigned very much supreme at the box office in the USA, Horror did not get a look in. In the whole of the top 30, nothing. Nada. In fact, you will see from this list that 1969 is for the very first time since I began a year in horror. It's a bit of a stinker. I only had one movie, one out of the whole lot, that I would actually rank at a 7 out of 10. One film. Everything else is below it. Inside me, inside my very being, I feel that horror was doing this catch-up thing with what happened the previous year. We had The Devil's Ride Out the previous year. We had Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead. These are big impact films, and sometimes when there is a huge impact like that, well, maybe it just takes a short while, at least back then, for the studios to play catch-up. That's the only thing I can think of. I can't think of any explanation for it. So, yeah, for this month's big hitter, 1969, I've once again figured out the very best film and the very worst films. That's what I do here. And to make this assessment, I watched a total of 30 horror, science fiction and fantasy movies. And I started to hit some really good ones when I got to about the number 11 mark in the chart. I know that's not very good, but that's just how it played out this time around. So... What was going on in 1969? That's what you really want to know right now, and I am going to fill you in. So, musically, as well as the big hitters like Abbey Road, Let It Bleed, Led Zeppelin 2, well, over the years that I've been born, I've been obsessed with the likes of this. My smile is stuck, I cannot go back to your frown land. So thank you, Captain Beefheart, for that. And also this. When the day is done, down to earth and sinks the sun, along with everything that was lost and won. When the day is done. And thank you, Mr. Nick Drake, for that one. And also, this is one of my favourite singles ever. We're caught in a trap I can't walk out Thank you, whoever sings that, no idea. And don't forget there are a couple of stories in the news as well. Uh, So, 1969. On July 20th, one of man's crowning achievements occurred when an American astronaut called Neil Armstrong, he became the very first human to set foot on the moon. He uttered the immortal words, that's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. 
There were three music festivals of note that I want to mention. We've got Woodstock. We've got the Isle of Wight Festival. And also, just to end 69 on an awful note, we've got Altamont as well. And for true crime in early August 69, some of those Manson family members, they committed the murders in Los Angeles. Clearly, you already know about this, but the Manson family gained international notoriety after the murder of actress Sharon Tate and four others in her home on August the 8th and August the 9th in 1969. And whilst it was later accepted at a trial that Charles Manson never expressly ordered the murders, his behaviour was deemed to warrant a conviction of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder, Evidence pointed to Manson's obsession with inciting a race war by killing all those that he thought were pigs. You know the rest, you've read the books, you've watched the films. But that was the news times. Seriously, culturally significant times they may be, but they were not horror movie podcast times, right? So, how do things work on this show? Well, for those new to the show, here's a quick guide to what a year in horror is all about. This is a podcast where I choose a year at random every single month and then I run down my personal favourite films of that year. It's very simple stuff. That's the whole idea of the podcast. And if I'm covering a film that you do not like, that you do not care for, or you just like to skip on, then all the time codes are in the notes. But be very careful because they act as spoilers for what's coming up next. Plus, with each episode, I am joined by some wonderful guests. They help me wade through all the more interesting films of the bunch. And today, we welcome podcast regulars, astronomer Mark Canali, podcaster and filmmaker Benjamin Bowles, and musician Nicky Jones. As for special guests, we've got Bunty and George from Whatzine, also podcast host Lono from We Belong Dead, and we also have the journalist megalord, Kevin Lyons. What a selection of sick mothers. And yeah, we're almost there, don't worry. My definition of horror, it's often considered too cosmic by those electro-hippies with a more conservative opinion of what makes a horror an actual horror. And sometimes these summer of love-filled decisions of mine, well, they may make it to the very high reaches of the chart. So, if you are one of those squares, one of those right-of-centre enthusiasts, then be prepared to get trippy by this very broadcast. And when you do make it to the end of the episode, I'm going to be picking out of a bag at random the next year that I tackle for the next month's edition of the podcast. And if you do look throughout the back catalogue of episodes, you'll see all the ones that we've already done and I've chucked them out of the bag. They've been jettisoned on and we're left with only the ones we haven't covered. Again, it's all so easy. It's ridiculous. And you might be thinking to yourselves, well, hang on, you only watched 30 films. That's not enough to judge a whole year in horror. But actually, I did have 36 lined up, but I couldn't source six of them. Uh, And I'll talk to you about them when I get to Sci-Fi Corner. And you know what else? I've got some rules. I have to follow these rules to create the show, but they're pretty loose. A movie has to score at least 3 out of 5 on Letterboxd for me to watch it, but sometimes there might be an exception to the rule. And 1969 saw the release of the William O. Brown movie, The Witchmaker. It scores a very close, but not quite close enough, 2.8 currently on Letterboxd. But with so few movies to actually choose from this month, 
and this one does have a fantastic poster with it well i decided i just had little choice and i snuck a couple of those in there just to bulk it up a bit here's the most important thing though i'm simply a fan I am an enthusiast. I'm not a scholar of horror. I am a dabbler in the darkness. I do not watch these things academically. It's a deep love. And I do genuinely get excited whenever there is a bunch of movies in front of me to watch. I genuinely get tingles about it. I love it. So if I do miss something out, then just let me know. I really do want to discover all this new stuff. But also, if I do pick something and you think, well, oh, that's a great little tip then let me know about that as well. I always love to hear from you. And I'm on all the usual socials. Feel free to contact the podcast. Uh, you can follow me up at Walla Not Weller on Letterboxd and on Instagram. You can hit me up on at Not Weller Pod on Twitter. If that's even a thing by now, I am recording this just a week after that Wally's actually bought it. Easiest thing to do, though, is just email me directly at ayearinhorror at gmail.com because I'm always on there. That's where I live. And the very final thing that I would say is that if you are enjoying this, then please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That is a review where you can say whatever you like, but just click five stars. Are you ready? It's 1969. You wanted the worst. You got the worst. It's the worst of the worst of the worst. Worst! And there were definitely worse movies than these that came out in 1969. But these were the worst seven that I sat through for this whole episode. And that includes one god-awful four out of ten pick, four three out of ten suckers, and two two out of ten catastrophes. As per... In all honesty, I cannot in good faith recommend that you watch any of these, even if you're morbidly curious. And the reason is, is that they either gave me a headache or they just made me want to go to sleep. So with that being said, here we go. Number seven, it's The Cremator. Čím dřív se člověk navrátí v prach, tím se dřív osvobodí, promění, osvítí. So, the cremator, it has been hanging around in my watch box for forever and a day, a long, long time. And would you believe that art house cinephile lovers, they wet themselves over this Czech film, always gets high ratings. 
people love to dig into it. It is truly dense, and I do think that it will need way more than just one watch that I spent on it, and I did that over three different nights. I was so at the end of my tether, let's just say that. I can see the layered textures and the rhythm in the films definitely worthy of further study, but for right now, I don't want to dig deep on a Nazi sympathiser. I'm saying that this one is not for me. No matter how thick the subtext, how beautiful the cinematography, sometimes you're just not going to gel with something. And next in my list for the worst films of 69 is Nightmare in Wax. And this one is a Cameron Mitchell American B-movie where a disfigured curator of a wax museum murders his enemies and then he uses their bodies as exhibits in his museum. Does it sound familiar? Well, that is because it is. I should have known that this would have been rubbish, but the lime green poster was so cool. I gave it a go. What a fall. My number five pick is not quite as bearable as that one, though, and it is called Blind Beast. It's totally not for me, even though I did enjoy that first 25 minutes or so. It plays out like a student art project, and unfortunately, everything escalates way too fast into this violent, sexy time for all. And if I'm being honest, if it was stretched out any longer, then I definitely would have turned it off before the end. Bored beast, more like, innit? Bored beast. And climbing its way up to number four is the inconceivably incompetent The Book of Stone. And I caught this one on YouTube. It's a Mexican thing. It's a witchcraft thing. Or is it a madness thing? Whatever it is, it involves small children and this convoluted overlong story. Worse still, and it's American this time, it's The Witchmaker. Again, I found this one on YouTube. It was slow as hell. It's a witchy, backwards, swampy, satanic yarn, which has a god-awful upload on YouTube, unfortunately. And I think if I had sourced a better print of this, then it would have scored higher and probably dodged this worst 10 completely. But as it stands, it was a really miserable time. Number three was The Witchmaker. But at number two... It's Psych Out for Murder. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. out for murder so it's a proto giallo or at least an early doors take on what would later become commonplace in italian cinema this one features a beautiful woman fresh from a mental health facility having to deal with her wealthy family that sold her out i was pretty bored until that final 10 minutes when the film became mildly interesting for this one it was an actual decent copy that was available on youtube but why did i bother it was hard hard work and i know there's only seven of them and we've only covered six but i think it's time for the rundown for those that have already forgotten at number seven it was the cremator at number six nightmare in wax at number five blind beast at number four the book of stone at number three the witch maker at number two psych out for murder 
And my number one is Orgies of Edo. And this, this was much worse than Psych Out for Murder. In fact, it was the worst thing that I'd seen in ages. And I will admit to getting a lot out of the other two Teruo Ishii films that I watched for 1969. And this, though, may have been interesting. I'll give it that at least. But it turned out to be flat out racist at points. It's a Japanese exploitation anthology. And it totally lost me in the final segment due to the cruelty to the animals. I wasn't game for it and I'm not going to give it any more of my time. And my advice, don't give it any of yours. And that were the stinkers for this month. A sinful seven if you will. Horror can be really scary. I don't know about you, but so far, this list has been quite the frightening thing. So, let's take a break, shall we? Up here, where the air is gone and it's deathly cold. (sighs) That is better. So, what better place than to be up here amongst the stars on the Walla Not Wella mothership and just putting your feet up, chilling, just relaxing. But before we get all science fictional and all fantastical, there are going to be six movies that I couldn't locate for the horror part of the show. And they all look pretty cool this time around. They were Nocturno 69, which was this Spanish art house thing. The House That Screamed, which is meant to be a classic also from Spain. I couldn't locate that. Next up was a Japanese science fiction action-adventure thing called Latitude Zero. And then, one of my favourite descriptions, this one was an Italian sex slasher set in the USA called Carnal Circuit. One that I do know is pretty good, yet I didn't see it, couldn't find it at all, is called Daddy's Gonna Hunting. And then finally... Fear No Evil I couldn't find, and that was a spirit in a mirror, sort of possesses people type deal. But they're the six I couldn't find. Very frustrating. And if any of you out there have seen any of them, I'd love to know if I'm actually missing out. As I say, I don't recognise most of the titles from 1969 anyway, and just the thought that I might be missing a banger amongst this six, well, it's stressing me out a little bit. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I'm stressed out. But that's all about horror, right? And as I say, up here in the vacuum of space, we don't do horror. We do science fiction. We do fantasy. Sci-fi corner. And for 1969, well... I had a total of seven films to sit through. And after having a thorough delve in them, I can report back to you that you can expect Italian surrealism, American surrealism, a shit Santa, some tiger blood, some ropey rocket ships, and some incredible stop animation from the master. But we've got to pick through them now, haven't we? So let's do it. Number seven to number one. Well, the worst in this bunch was called Fellini Satricon. And that is a film that is really highly regarded. It's a surrealist take on ancient Rome. And it looks like it's filmed on a stage in an auditorium somewhere. It bored me silly. 
really bad <laughs> slightly better than that though but still pants don't get me wrong it was carry on christmas the laughter track in that was really hard work the comedy was really hard work the horror references were awful it was based on that christmas carol story of course but it plays like an early precursor to the scary movie franchise in parts also i watched it two weeks after christmas don't do that don't be watching Christmas films at that point. It doesn't work. And just a little bit more favourable in my mind was this next one. It's Toby Hooper's debut, Eggshells. And I can't go into this one with a flippant one-liner here and then just move on. I reckon it's time we should hit up a guest. So, please welcome back to A Year in Horror, Nikki Jones, member of the band Jukebox Monkey and an ally in all things horror. Last time we spoke with Nikki, it was a couple of months back now, and it was our 1992 big hitter where we delved into Dust Devil. We may be treading on them very carefully because Hooper is a hero of ours, but nonetheless, here is myself and Nikki discussing the 1969 art house nonsense that is eggshells. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Paul. How you doing? You right? Yeah. Yeah. This is so weird. I've been dreading this and really looking forward to it. <laughs> you, you come up with the best choices. And I'm I honestly, who else is going to choose eggshells? Like, I'm so excited and so in regret. Like, what have I done? I can't mm-hmm. believe we're doing this. It's great. Because I, th- I think people will genuinely check this out purely because it's a Toby Hooper vehicle. So I want to know your history before we go into like talking about Toby Hooper and what you think of him, just how you got this copy of eggshells and what made you think, Oh, this is the one. (laughs) Well, um, I have a very lovely arrow video, three disc box set of Texas Chainsaw Massacre two. early doors. It's absolutely awesome. And it comes with a a second disc of Toby Hooper early works. And that's basically one short silent film, which is kind of slapstick and weird and eggshells. And it sat there for quite a while. I I bought it mostly because I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And then uh, I eventually got around. I think I moved house and I didn't, I no longer had the internet. I, I hadn't hooked up new internet, so I couldn't watch Netflix. So I was digging my DVDs out. Cool. It's like, oh, come on, let's put eggshells on. And so I eventually watched it a few years back. And um, now I've watched it again <laughs> for a podcast <laughs> because for some reason I'm an idiot. <clears throat> so, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> I found it on YouTube and right next door to it was the commentary uh, with it again on YouTube, and I watched that as well. Ah, see, I have on my notes that I have not watched the commentary. It is <laughs> on the Blu-ray. I probably, if, if I'd spotted there was a commentary, I would have probably put that on for my view for this uh, episode, but I didn't, and I'm not watching it a third time. <laughs> so you'll have to fill in the gaps with the commentary. <laughs> um, do you know what? I get that. 
Okay, so before we get into this film, uh, what's your history with Toby Hooper? Are you a fan of his work? I know it's quite a patchy catalogue, but there are some, I mean, all-timers there. Well, yeah, I mean, he is, he's the Weezer of horror directors, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's done, he has probably the most up and down career, but you forgive them, you forgive them because of the good stuff they've done, much yeah. like Weezer themselves. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the title to end all titles for films when I was like a 13, 14 year old boy. And um, like, I won't repeat it, I think a third time on this podcast, but when I discovered the video shop in Greece, that the pirate in uh, Cyprus, the video shop, that this was the first thing I sought out, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. I had to see a film with that title. And um, like a lot of people, I think the first time I watched it, I was quite disappointed because it, it's not the film you expect it to be, I think, especially growing up with 80s horror and splatter and stuff like that. And it's only on further, list, uh, further watchings that you realise what a brilliant film it is and how it, it's, it's nasty, but not in the way you thought it was going to be the first time. You thought it yeah. was going to be gory and splattery, but it's actually more kind of psychological. And then, yeah, I've, I've stuck with most of his career and he has some great points. I, I would go to bat for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 over the original any day. Whoa! I absolutely love the second one. It is pure 80s and it's, it's basically everything you think the first one's going to be. He does it in the second one. So I love that film. I love Bill Mosley in that film. And I think it's brilliant. Life Force is a good one, if a little bit weird. Uh, but he has done some real crap as well. And he's done some real, especially near the uh, like the latter part of his career. Uh, there's bits I haven't even bothered watching. Um, but when he was good, Poltergeist, obviously. I mean, there's a massive lump of Spielberg in Poltergeist, but it's still a brilliant film. Sure. Um, yeah, a lot of time for him. Um, I will forgive him his sins, his misgivings, much like Weezer, because um, he has Texas Chainsaw Massacre, much like they have the Blue Album. So, <laughs> Where do you uh, stand on Eaten Alive? So my band, just for, for reference, I have just released our tribute to the song Eaten Alive uh, yesterday. Which I, I listened think... to half an hour before this podcast and yet <laughs> forgot that that was a Toby Hooper film. <laughs> so, I, do you like it? A lot of people are on the fence or, or just genuinely don't like it. I haven't found someone that actually loves that film. I don't love it. I think there's a lot to love about it. I mean, it is so rednecky, which I always quite enjoy. Uh, it's it's deeply flawed, but it's it's. I would definitely recommend it to a horror fan who hasn't seen it, put it that way. Cool. Again, that's a arrow title. They when they get it right, I think they get it right. Like the oh, extras, yeah. oh, just God, I love them. I love oh, them. I'll have, to, I'll have to hunt it down. All right. So, eggs. <laughs> just go eggs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not one for this sort of cinema, and yet I appreciate it whenever I do come across it. I don't know whether I like it or hate it or love it. I just don't know. Why, when you watch this thing and it's twice now, mm -hmm. like, what are you getting out of it? Can you get anything out of it? Um, I discovered the joys of the Blu-ray's 1.5 speed function. I definitely got the most <laughs> use out of that for certain bits. Uh, unlike you, I, I think appreciate is a, is a good way to describe my view of these sorts of films. It's, uh, I, I struggle with surrealism for surrealism's sake in films. Like I love me some surreal comedy because 
comedy is inherently absurd anyway, but surreal films that lack a narrative or some sort of structure, I appreciate them as a piece of art, but it's not something I go to. Like, I, I don't think I've made it to the end of Holy Mountain by Jodorowsky, and I've tried four times. I think I've seen all of it in bits. David Lynch is a genius. I will watch one of his films maybe every two years because I find them genuinely quite exhausting. And he does have a narrative. You just have to really dig for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not my cup of tea. It's not what I go for. I, I like weird films, but I don't like surreal films if if there's a difference there. Do you know what I mean? I think oh, surreal eschews a narrative, whereas weird is just there's a narrative, but it's a very strange one. I think that's the definition that I oh, pull from that. I think you're spot on with the the Lynch reference there. When I was thinking, well, for the final question, sort of like, what would you pair it with? For me, the only thing I could was a razor head because I don't actually watch surrealist films. And then I thought, well, hang on, actually, no, I get a lot out of a razor head. And mm. I, I piece in this thing. I watched the commentary. I'm still don't know. I'm none the wiser. <laughs> Um, like there, I think like Lords of Salem. I love those surrealist bits in it. Absolutely. Uh, and Jacob's Ladder, Mandy, couple. Mandy, more. yeah. Again, those surrealist elements in there, brilliant. Bring them on. But I don't want to watch it for a whole ninety minutes. No, I find it difficult. Or was this seventy minutes? This one. It's ninety. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's seventy on the. 0.15 speed but yeah it is ah. definitely 90 minutes i'm very aware of how long this film is <laughs> so this is what i got from the commentary they make it very clear yes this is a ghost film and right. it's like all right okay because there is weird stuff going on in a cellar and the mm -hmm. cellar is kitted out to be uh sort of looks like a uh, almost a hammer horror dungeon of some sort so yeah i can see the throwing a few horror elements in there but there was a bit where they said right this is the ghost's point of view uh, and it's where there's really quick camera cutting going on as it's going mm -hmm. down the stairs it's going through the house through the house downstairs down into the cellar into the cellar that's the ghost's point of view and that's where it sort of ends apart from they bring up a ghost a couple of times shoehorning this into horror is difficult but yeah that's where they're putting it again what does it all mean i'm i'm so far away from from understanding what's going on that i find it difficult to talk about apart from the hippie element and yes. what we're watching on the film is a perfect sort of time capsule for the clothing for the way people spoke and things like that and i i think i could take that sort of great stuff out of it and i really enjoyed that element is there anything that you pulled out of it that you think actually I like I like a bit of this um I mean I love anything that's super kind of late 60s early 70s Americana I I, I love that aesthetic yeah um so I do enjoy that as a lover of Texas Chainsaw Massacre um even though it's so different in tone you you can see quite a lot of Toby Hooper's talent in this. There's quite a few, well, obviously not nods to Texas Chainsaw Massacre because it hasn't been made yet, but there are, there's, there's a scene quite near the beginning where the weird guy comes out and he sits on the porch and it's shot mm. low on this white front porch. And for a second, I was certain that was the same house as the Texas Chainsaw House because it is the same exact shot as when the girl walks in and meets Leatherface for the first time. 
so it was cool to see that there's like shots of eyeballs and like weird twisted shots that he's taken into texas chainsaw massacre there's some jarring kind of metallic sound effects that he went on to perfect in texas chainsaw so i enjoyed that from a god was like a film history sense it was interesting seeing the early formation i mean what happened to that man in between those two films, I don't know. I can only assume he stopped smoking weed and got really angry because the tonal shift is is jarring. But um, visually, there's there's quite a lot. And I, I have, obviously, I've read quite a bit about this before going. There's a lovely big old booklet in my Texas Chainsaw DVD which covers it. And um, Very jealous. they mentioned how like a lot of his films are somewhat of a reflection of America at the time. And like Texas Chainsaw was talking about the highways taking away the small businesses and Texas Chainsaw 2 was then the 80s. It was like the, the yuppie era and things like that. And Toby has said it is kind of a reflection of that kind of Vietnam era hippie rebellion sort of thing that he was trying to reflect in. And I think partly that's just him saying all I had was my hippie mates and a house. <laughs> and so that's what we filmed. But um. Like you say, is as a time capsule, it is quite it's quite a fun little kind of almost like a fly on the wall, I think, of like a student house in like the late 60s. Well, I, I thought that's exactly what it was. I thought that they'd set up their their cameras and they had some rough ideas of some shots and some camera tricks and experimental techniques that they wanted to to go at and then just filmed what was happening, fly on the wall style. But it's not the case. When they were, the, the, the woman and the fella uh, are in the bath and they're just talking about politics. It's a very mundane conversation, but it's very interesting because you're just thinking, well, where is this going? Well, I just thought this was just them filming. And that's one of the conversations they've just kept in because it mm -hmm. did have that sort of interesting, like, where is this going to go tone about it? But apparently not. Like, that was three takes. And each time Toby got them out, and said, I liked this, 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 and this, what you talked about. Let's change it up, add some of this in. Don't mention that this time and go at it again. And it took three times to get that right. And I just thought, well, that's interesting that, mm. that you've done that because it doesn't look that way. So I think that's really good. That's a bit of masterful filmmaking where you're chopping and choosing. Yes, definitely. But I reckon this is my take from this film. I think if he hadn't have done this, we wouldn't be talking about Toby Hooper now. I Because Texas Chainsaw would be, have so many of these elements in it where he's mm -hmm. practicing and knowing what works and what doesn't. That shot you mentioned, that works. I'm going to use yeah. that again. The, the flipping and chopping and changing of shutter speeds and everything like that to get the ghost effect, that doesn't work. And he didn't use it again. No, that's very true. That's my take from it. So like, like you, I think it's a historical thing that if you're really into this director, I think it's worth checking out, but I don't know. But let's cut Difficult. to the chase, Paul. It's fucking boring. <laughs> That's it. Uh, and my final word on, on the, the film is in capital letters, bold type. I've just got four boring runs of monologue in a row and I was checking out. And and mm. we, I think that's at the moment it was seventy minutes. So that's where I got my seventy minutes. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> so I did last that long without, you know, I just really wanting to. But it was so much of in, inane chatter. 
Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like so me much. on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think that it, that's actually the worst bits. The bits that are just kind of, there's no dialogue and it's very filmic and trippy and stuff like that. I, that, I could quite just kind of chill out and enjoy that. I didn't have to focus too hard. It was just the static students sitting around stone having conversations bit that just went on and on and on and on. And you can't even really fast forward them because I wanted to hear what they yeah. were saying. Those are the bits that really dragged for me. It's a shame, but at the same time, at the, at, at the same time, I did get something out of it. So I can't bin it. And, mm. and I'm glad we're talking about it. And I'm glad it's got a mention. And I'm really glad you've chosen it. Because I would never have ever have watched this. Ever, ever, ever. <laughs> um, and I, although it was on my list. Like yeah. as as a tick, I need to I need to be watching this for 1969. Um, nice. Final question. Go on. Can you recommend it in any way? I think if Hooper had had a bit more of a prestigious career, this would be being talked about a lot more because it was Toby Hooper's first film. But as we've said, his career was very patchy. The latter career, he was almost forgotten about, sadly. Um, so it is interesting. It is only interesting based on how interested you are in Toby Hooper and or his first major film, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You can see, or as a piece of like a time capsule of that part of history. Um, it's not entertaining. It's not exciting. It's not even particularly good. But if you love film and you love Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you love Toby Hooper's style, then it's worth watching purely for that, I think. You, yeah, you said what film would it be best paired with? Mm -hmm. And aside from my first reaction to that question was crank high voltage just because you need something to wake you back up again afterwards. <laughs> but if you're a true masochist, I would pair this with David Cronenberg's first movie, which is called Stereo, which also, much like this, shows a lot of the early promise of what he would go on to do. And it is also interminable. It's only 60 minutes and it's probably more boring than eggshells. So if you really want to talk to yourself and you want to have a bit of a history lesson, pair it with pair stereos and eggshells and see if you can stay awake till the end. Because <laughs> wow. I guarantee you cannot. <laughs> I love that. Okay, well, that's a challenge, basically. You, you've set up a year in Holland challenge. Yeah. Um, right. All right, Nikki. thank you so much. Coming on. No worries. Cheers, Paul. See you soon. Following on from eggshells with a big jump in quality is The Immortal. It's an ABC movie of the week which I found on YouTube. It's obvious that this one was meant to be a pilot, a race car driver, he's got immortal blood and an old rich business guy just wants that on tap so he can prolong his life. It's better than you think it would be but it's still not good enough to search out and pop it on your watch lists. Into the top three now, and it's marooned. The crew of Iron Man 1 has closed down the S-4B space laboratory in which they have worked, lived, slept and eaten for the last five months. 
We have negative retrofire. Say again, Iron Man. Negative. No burn. The secondary thrusters are out. Repeat, out. And if that big baby doesn't fire this time, they're not coming back. But don't tell me what to do. We've been taking your goddamn orders, and where the hell are we? From now on, we're going to make all the decisions. Negative. Do not blow the hatch. Open it with the lever, the unlocking lever. Do you read me, Stoney? Are the results you gained worth the lives you lost? You're damn right they are. And I still can't understand how this one has got so high in the list. The synopsis makes it sound great. Just check this out. Three marooned astronauts, only 55 minutes left to rescue them, while the whole world watches and waits. After spending several months in an orbiting lab, three astronauts prepare to return to Earth, only to find their de-orbit thrusters will not activate. After initially thinking that they might have to abandon them in orbit, NASA decides to launch a daring rescue. Their plans are complicated by a hurricane heading towards the launch site and a shrinking air supply in the astronaut's capsule. Sounds good, right? And yet, this one is so boring in places, somehow all that potential suspense, all that jeopardy, it's just sucked out of all the proceedings. In its place, I found myself thinking, that special effect looks pretty decent for the time, and that is not what I should have been thinking. It's marooned. Still on half marks, at number two is Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. There are lots of, and inverted commas, impressive visuals. Lots of space stuff going on. But the thing is, coming so soon after 2001, A Space Odyssey, well, this one looks pretty ropey. And whereas that movie today is still really powerful enough to get me to buy the 4K special edition and just be blown away time and time again, the similar motifs and similar moments on display in this, they were really slow and unimpressive. Before we get to number one, though, here is your rundown. So at number seven, Fellini Satricon. And number six, Carry On Christmas. At number five, Eggshells. At number four, The Immortal. Three, Marooned. Number two, Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. And then we are at number one in my 1969 sci-fi and fantasy rundown. Let me tell you. It wasn't closely run at all. This film was way out on top. But it still only gets a 6 out of 10 from me. It's the Valley of Gwangi. Stop and listen. What you are about to see has never been seen before by human eyes. Gwangi. Gwangi. The Valley of Gwangi. Amazing creatures, the beasts seen for the first time in the life of man. James Franciscus, Gila Golan, Richard Carlson, and Guanji the Great. The world will never be the same again. The Valley of Guanji. This picture has been rated G. And this is what the letterbox synopsis says. It says, K. 
cowboys battle monsters in the lost world of the Forbidden Valley. A turn-of-the-century Wild West show struggling to make a living in Mexico comes into the possession of a tiny prehistoric horse. This leads to an expedition to the Forbidden Valley where they discover living dinosaurs. They capture one and they take it back to be put on display, leading to inevitable mayhem. Now, here's what I think. I really liked it until it went all King Kong towards the end. And then I thought to myself, well, actually, this thing was quite King Kong-y during the first and the second acts as well. And then I thought, hang on, I'll just see what they did here. It's King Kong, but not as good. But I want to give a big PS here. Ray Harryhausen's effects were on point. If I'd seen this as a kid, it would have just been completely and utterly magical. But... We're not talking about magic in this podcast any longer. I think it's about time we got back to it, right? Let's go into the real horror. The very toppest pick of the pops. The absolute terror. That is the A Year in Horror 1969 Rundown. So, today, there's only eight also-rans. I know, from the whole thing. And from these eight picks of mine, four of these guests actually chose films amongst this eight. So, let's move on, let's do it. This is the also-rans. Maybe I should get a jingle for the also-rans. I think I will. I think I'll get a jingle. If you're counting, which I don't know why you would be, but if you are, then at the number 16 spot, it's Yokai Monsters along with ghosts it's a japanese monster movie and i found this one on shudder in this one there's some gangland murders that take place on spiritual grounds that lead to an epic journey for a young girl who's on a mission to find her father whilst her gangster pursuers are themselves being hunted by the yokai monsters it's a dark take which does go for laughs at the oddest of times and the sword play also looks proper unrehearsed in places but the monsters look great and I was never bored through this whole thing and with what I've come across so far in 69 I'm going to take that that's a win next up it is the deplorable love camp 7 this was the very first nazi exploitation film or nazi exploitation if you will that I had ever seen and by all accounts it was the first one to actually exist And what's weird is that I didn't hate, hate it. It fits smack bang in the middle of what I've seen for this year. So there's that. But here's the thing. On the Patreon channel, because it is also a video nasty, I covered this thing in horrible detail recently. Uh, But I didn't want to face this one alone and go at it for you guys. So joining me with this stinky, filthy, dirty shit pile of a film... It is the podcast host from Squaring the Circle Pod. It's my good mate and regular guest over here. It's Benjamin Bowles. This motion picture is not a figment of the writer's imagination. It is based entirely on actual fact. Be prepared to let us take you inside the barbed wire gates of love and 
seven. Both of these officers, having full knowledge of the assignment, have agreed to volunteer to help us. Your arrest and your subsequent imprisonment into the women's camp has all been prearranged by Captain Calais. Perhaps your mission has not been clearly explained to you. For the next five days, you are going to be whores for the Third Reich. There, ladies. I trust you find yourself entirely refreshed after your little shower. I want to welcome you once more to Love Camp 7. You may find it difficult to believe that this motion picture is true. You may find it incredible that two young American women would volunteer to throw themselves into the unspeakable indignities and horrible humiliations of a Nazi love camp in order to serve their country. You will follow the factual story of two American girls who are taken prisoner by the Nazi Gestapo and placed in Love Camp 7, a camp where women were used like cattle entirely to service the pleasures and perversions of the Nazi frontline officers. Love Camp 7 is actually filmed on location where the story took place. It is without a doubt the most total and complete study in reality this theater has ever had the privilege to present to its patrons. <laughs> amusing. You may find it horrifying, disgusting. Certainly, you will not find it light entertainment. But we guarantee that you will not live long enough to ever forget the things you will witness and experience inside Love Camp 7. Welcome to Nazi Exploitation Cinema. Benjamin Bowles, you are back on the pod. This is both Patreon and on the main show. Well done, mate. How are you? You're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Love Camp 7. This is the very first one of a whole slew of Nazi exploitation films or Nazi exploitation. Nazi exploitation uh this is your i take it your first dip into it uh, what do you think mate what gave you that idea you you mean to think that all our chats over the well it seems like years um you would think this this would be my first one um you're, you're bang you're bang on it yeah you're completely correct this is my first uh, my first ever nazi exploitation film um i watched another one yesterday just to see if this was the norm because this was also my very first one okay um and even though it is the very first of them uh, the one i watched was called ilsa she wolf of the ss oh yeah oh yeah uh and it was a, a much higher production uh, that one but it was still pretty much grimy left me feeling a bit filthy needing a shower it's like same sort of gist so i guess like even seven years later they didn't sort of move on too far what were your first impressions watching this thing did you think like what the hell has he done is he stitched me up again yeah it's, it's a good question and i was thinking how 
how am I going to talk about this film? It's difficult. Um, and, and it's really difficult. And so I've, I've got a question for you, actually. All right, go. Why have they made this film? Like, what, what is the point in this film? That, that is my question to you. What, what is the rationale behind this film? And also these kind of films. Now, of course, I know it's 1969. So presumably blokes had to get their thrills somehow without Red Tube and all the rest of them. Yeah. But I, I, I just, I watched the first five, 10 minutes and I just couldn't work it out. I couldn't work out why anybody would watch this and enjoy it because presumably it's a um you said there was one of many and it's a cult classic of of some kind so presumably some people watch this in 2022 for enjoyment now i i, I just simply cannot I, I was trying to wrap my head around it i can't understand it well at the time 69 there was this massive boom of okay. nazi films um obviously not exploitation but it was just like we're the allies we're going to go in there we're going to trick them somehow we're going to escape from a camp we're gonna we're gonna fight the nazis and it would always end up even with all these films as well that i'm aware of it ends up with the allies winning yeah okay that's fair enough and this took it to the extreme where okay skin flicks you have to go to the cinema to see them sort of things anyway at the time porn you weren't going to be able to buy a vhs unless uh unless you invented it yourself uh, you know so i can only think it is completely for for kicks so if yeah. you've got that kink and and people do like that that uniform is a very smart uniform it's a smart looking uniform um you know may, maybe you know people will be getting off on that sort of sort of thing but what worries me about it uh, and what I don't understand, much like yourself, is just the ratio of exploitation and being horrible cunty to women, the victory at the end. Like, I don't understand why that that plot isn't served throughout the film. Like, there's a setup, this is what we're going to do. And then it's a bunch of exploitation. So we just get to see women being raped or uh, abused or degraded in any way that possible that, that the Nazis can do. And at the at the very end, you get even a less less length of time of, of like, yay, the Allies have won and we've killed <laughs> yeah, the Nazis, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm confused, Ben. I don't understand it. And yet I didn't hate it. Like, I, I just thought, oh, it's, it's all right. I've seen so many of these things now. I think I'm desensitised. But yeah. well, I don't ever want to watch is. it again. Maybe that's what it is, because I hadn't seen something like this. And that's I think I think you're right. It's the point is the fact that the setup is the first five minutes of what the mission is. And that's pretty standard storytelling one on one. This is what you're going to see over the next 90 minutes. And this is the mission. Um, and then you sort of just forget about the mission for the next, you know, an hour and 20 minutes. Um, and then there's just lots, lots of women being abused. Um, oh, and by the way, uh, they did get out and they rescued the person and, and that's fine. And roll credits. Good. See you later. Yeah. And, and maybe, maybe it is as simple as that. Maybe it's 1969 and blokes wanted to go into the cinema. And if they were had that fetish and had that interest, they could 
um or hopefully they didn't get off in the cinema but you know they 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 had something in their mind's eye that they could take back home that's that's the only thing i can i can think of and yeah i i suppose it begs the question don't does anybody watch this in 2022 i mean it had something like i watched it on youtube it had 18 million views or something it's mad it goes up constantly <laughs> it's crazy so obviously it is it's but but people aren't going to be tuning in for the cinematography or acting or anything are they? they're just going to be tuning in for the boobs i think the reason so many have is because the bbfc will not give it a release over in this country you can get it but you it's an import i think so yeah and it's a video nasty so there's always that interest i think it fails at what it's trying to do with that titillation uh trying to get men off um after you've seen like the first 10 minutes of boobs what's left after that you know just watching the film you become desensitized i felt like what is anybody getting out of this after 50 minutes mm. you know mm here we go again they're torturing some more some more women and they're naked right okay yeah, that's that's literally <laughs> i i don't I, I honestly i don't get it and like you could go well actually hang on there there is that like the, the nazis in there and they've got those comically bad accents and i think bob crease he plays like the commandant and he's a right bastard and like you can get into that oh god he's you want to watch out for him um but then that's the story doesn't go anywhere. It's just like he's he's the boss. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Oh, Ben, I'm, I'm conflicted. Well, don't be conflicted. Just hate it. Just 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 be a good man. And I hate don't it. know why it should exist. I don't get it. And that was my issue. I just I I was racking my brains as I said, thinking, what is the point of this film? Like what 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 does it what does it do? What what's this filmmaker? trying to say but it's quite obvious what he's trying to say and maybe also because you're looking at it through the lens of 2022 just how well exploitative is is the right word that's what it's all about isn't it but it's just they're they're just using women for their own ends over and over again but the trouble is the trouble is is that you feel like the actors are actually being used for their for the filmmakers own ends too so it's not obviously what's going on on the screen is horrible but you just get that sense of it's just so seedy and just there's a big sort of power difference with with the whole thing yeah i hated it paul <laughs> I, I can tell you that one of the uh actors she was when she was strapped up on that gurney thing yeah she was in pain uh mm -hmm. for that and um she's gone on record to say that as well really so yeah. there was that circumstance with like with a few of these films where the director has just i guess because a lot of this is so cheap isn't it it's so mm -hmm. cheap i can't imagine the rules and regulations were all being obeyed even back then and you know it's like this this woman just wants that job but how badly do you want that job you know and how much did they know before going in of what they were going to have to 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 go through well that's it yeah and and i mean we've seen it with harvey weinstein haven't we um weinstein should i say about how how that power dynamic can be used for to do anything that they want really so there's there's possibly something that's that's going on with that um but yeah there was just something not something pretty unwholesome about the whole thing so can you recommend 
anything about this film. So if someone's like, they want to know what all this fuss is about, I'm, I've already said to to the, the people listening that I can't recommend it, but mm. is there anything you can sort of take from it? Well, if I think if people want to to see, because because I suppose how much we've discussed it and slagged it off, they're probably, if you haven't seen it, you might think, oh, well, let's... It sounds quite interesting just to see how bad it is, and it is that bad. But maybe, maybe if that's the case, all I would advise is skip to about forty-five minutes in, uh, watch to about an hour, so you've got a fifteen-minute window of women being tortured, because that's all you're going to see for ninety minutes anyway. Yeah. And then essentially, that's because there's no story. Don't worry about the story. They haven't bothered. The filmmakers haven't. Bothered <laughs> they haven't worried. Them, so. You don't have to worry. Exactly. If they don't worry, we don't worry. So watch 15 minutes and you know what the fuss is all about. Um, simple as that, really. Before you go, Ben. Yes, uh, mate. Let's, let's lighten this, or maybe not, but what's your favourite World War II film? Oh, well, this is a good question. The film I'm going to say, there's quite a few. The obvious one is Schindler's List. I love Schindler's List. I think Do that's... you mean Schindler's Lust, the, the porn parody? Yes, yeah, yeah, the 1969 version, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's my favourite. So my favourite film of all time, Schindler's List, bar none. Love is it. it? Yeah, okay, I didn't absolutely know love it. Yeah, it's it's what it's pretty much a perfect film. But so that's the obvious choice. So anybody who hasn't seen that, yes, absolutely watch that. But I'm going to go with the Thin Red Line. Oh, you little you little caboose, Terence Malick. Now, after thinking about this question, I thought, God, I haven't seen that for like 10, 15 years. So I am going to seek that out very soon and watch it because I remember loving that film and loving it for because it was quite understated compared to other World War II movies. It wasn't, um, I, I do like Saving Private Ryan, but it wasn't that kind of style. It was really subtle. Um, cinematography was just incredible. Uh, and quite original in the storytelling. So I'm going to re-watch that very soon. So I'm going to say The Thin Red Line. I've never seen it. I know all about it. And it, it is now at the top of my list. Oh, beautiful. Well, maybe we should watch it together, Paul. Oh, what a date. Shall we do it? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm serious. I'm Let's serious. wash Love Camp 7 out of our faces and watch a decent war movie. Oh, that is a date. Many thanks go out to Benjamin Bowles for putting himself through that one. But we're moving on. We're still in the also-rans. So, more from Japan now. The next one up is Inferno of Torture. And I managed to see this one via this incredible transfer that's on Arrow Blu-ray. And it is the most exploitative Japanese movie that I have ever seen. And this one is from 69, no less. So, we're going back years upon years there must be more gnarly, horrible stuff out there from Japan. If you're into tortured and tattooed sex slaves, then this one may well be for you. Nothing beat the opening three minutes for me, though. This film just starts off incredibly. And I don't know if anything else from this entire year matched that level of intensity in that first three minutes. It was incredible. It is worth the price of admission alone. That's Inferno of Torture. 
At number 13, it is Haunted Castle. Another day, another Japanese ghost cat movie. As usual, with this one, there's men in power that take things too far and it ends in death and it ends in revenge and it ends in a ghost cat. I don't know what was going on in the water over there at the time, but yeah, Japan, mental. Next up, it's Venus in Furs and... Don't do what I did and watch Devil in the Flesh, which is also known as Venus in Furs in some territories. I spent the whole time wondering whether it was actually a horror at all. I didn't know what was going on, but it's because I chose the wrong Venus in Furs. Make sure if you do want to get a look in, you choose the one by Franco. And this one, it is a really pretty looking art piece with this adventurous jazzy score that focuses on a woman that takes a slow burn revenge on those that killed her in the opening scenes or is it it's a great story actually for this one and franco doesn't normally deliver me great stories but did here uh, there's a lack of blood and there is a lack of strong and definitive kills and that holds it back for me but venus and furs was a, was a pleasant surprise okay next up and it is a bloody gold nugget, I want to let you know that. And they all are from here on. As regular listeners will be aware, I do listen to a bunch of podcasts as well as doing all this stuff. And when I create these episodes, to close up, I tend to recommend one or two podcasts for you to listen to. That will actually complement the film. And one that I came across that I found proper addictive, it was called We Belong Dead. It's coming out of Virginia in the US uh, and it's one of those laid back chummy pods where a couple of friends, they just talk shit and then they clearly come across as they're obsessed with horror and they dig into various different films at various different times. But you're there for the whole journey for them. There's a few pods that really work like that. There's a few that don't and We Belong Dead is one that definitely does. So I got chatting with host Lono and invited him on. And I love that he was banging to chatting about my number 11 pick. It's an anthology movie called Night Gallery. Not that he thought it was an anthology at all. He just thought it was a TV series. Uh, as we mentioned in our chat coming up, I didn't know anything about this one at all. And as I say, it turns out it was just a pilot for this TV show that got picked up for three whole seasons. Now, our chat is really, really long. And we begin this thing by just talking shit about music and whatnot. And it has the flow and the feel of the We Belong Dead episodes. So I, I just want to keep it all in pretty much. I did do a few edits here and there. But yeah, I love it. It's really cosy. It's really warm. I, I don't know. I just had a great time. Uh, we eventually do get talking about Night Gallery in it. It's probably about 40 minutes in when it starts. But yeah, this whole thing was a delight. There's so much horror chat. I found his description of him discovering horror utterly delightful. So yeah, here we go. It's myself and Lono. We are chatting about horror and we are chatting about Night Gallery. Miss Joan Crawford, Ossie Davis, Richard Kiley, Roddy McDowell and Barry Sullivan. Starring in the Night Gallery. I'm Rod Serling. I would like to invite you to join me for the telling of three stories represented in this gallery by these paintings to be displayed here for the first time. Each is a collector's item in its own way, not because of any special artistic quality, but because each captures on a canvas, suspends in time and space, a frozen moment in a nightmare. My abiding concern, doctor, and my singular preoccupation is myself. 11 hours of 12, fewer or more, it makes no difference. 
I want to see something. Trees, concrete, buildings, grass, airplanes, colors! Alles in der Welt, Deutschland, Deutschland, überall, alles überall. You look here, old man. Death is final. Death is it. I think not, Mr. Jeremy. I think there are things stronger than death and more lasting than the grave. Portafoy? I think hate is stronger than death, Mr. Jeremy. And I think you're beginning to realize that. <laughs> Join me for the unveiling at the night gallery. Is this an American thing? Because I, I, I it's not shameful, but it's sort of when the newer wave of, of British music hit America was the Oasis blur type of thing. And I got very wrapped up into Oasis and that's not very popular to say anymore <laughs> around here. Anyway, <laughs> I think they're amazing. I mean, I could, I can go on a YouTube rabbit hole of Liam Gallagher interviews and just spend days. But anyway, that's where I found out where I learned about Paul Weller, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. And I don't know if it's an American thing or if it's looked down upon, but like I like the jam. I think they're they're great. Yeah, yeah I love the jam. Yeah, yeah. But I fucking love Paul Weller's solo stuff, like Wildwood and Peacock Suit and uh, Carnation. And it's just something about his solo stuff seems so personal and relatable. It's so well recorded as well. It'd yeah. be like an audio file. Oh know. yeah. <laughs> they're, they're so well recorded like i i am um, checked out when he was doing all these psychedelic stuff a few albums back um, oh i haven't kept but, up with him i didn't know he dipped into psychedelia oh yeah, yeah yeah a couple of albums on the trot and they they won all sorts of awards over here and uh, it's like reinventing himself so yeah he did a good job interesting but, you know, i might have to dip in just to hear because i the idea of him doing psychedelic music is hard for me to put my head around i think yeah, I think he um, he said in an interview in Mojo that he was interested. He just suddenly got really back into the birds and mm. then the more weird stuff that the birds were trying. And he just ran with that sort of thing and just ran ran with it from like them at their most weirdest. So, I mean, I guess he's earned the right to just do whatever he wants. Yeah, no, no one's going to say no, uh, <laughs> yeah. except my friends that will put my face on his posters. And that's how it rolls. In that's my town. favorite. My favorite thing of the day so far. Uh, oh, you'll belly laugh when I show you it. It looks ridiculous, <laughs> man. What's your current like? Um, like what's um? I used to say like what tapes are your what records are you listening? But what what are you currently listening to? Do you know what I've listened to? Like four albums this year. I've not because I've just been so obsessed for the last three years. So obsessed with horror movies. Yeah, and like whenever I get that, like oh, I've got half an hour here. I'm going to stick something on for half an hour and come back to it tomorrow. Just of a horror film never music and I, i've and it's been my whole life i've just been obsessed with music until yeah. covid and then movies just took over in a crazy way so really i have no idea like i i still think when i when i think of music i'm thinking of like five years six years ago right yeah i'm the same way them. it's it's so rare that i get into anything new you know I, i'm still listening to rocky erickson records like i, I have a hard time getting off of like that era bizarro type stuff you know yeah i discovered uh, what was it 10 10 years ago or whatever i had no idea there was this whole um sort of along with zeppelin and sabbath there was this whole undercard of bands 
like in America at the time. I just had no idea. And then I watched some documentary about it and it was like, oh my, there's like 40 different bands that I've never heard of. And they were like, half of them are great. Yeah. And, and yeah, that was it. I was gone. I love rediscovering stuff that's just old and I've never known this, which is why I love oh. all these movies that like I'm watching now. As right. Well. Yeah. Same yeah. Thing. This has been out there forever, and I've never. How's have I? How have I never even heard of Night Gallery before I like started researching yeah. in 1969? That's mad. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to talk about this because I rarely get a chance to. Uh, my co-host Ian is like the best guy in the world, and I wouldn't have anyone else as a co-host. But it's really hard to get him to watch anything, <laughs> especially Bad. like a long form because we. I don't. I never thought. I. I mean, until you sent me the list, I didn't realize that the they did a pilot that they considered a, mo- a film. Yeah, yeah. I nice. just always thought it was a a three season TV show that was way better than you know was considered. But um, yeah, when I saw that, I was like, I'm finally going to be able to talk to somebody about that. <laughs> well, I I can't. I don't know a lot about it. But before we get there, let's talk about your history with horror movies. So welcome to the podcast. Lano, how you doing? I am doing great. I am uh, truly thrilled and honored to be on this show. I, like I was telling you earlier, I, I cannot stop listening to A Year in Horror. Um, <laughs> it's maybe it. one. It's probably one of the best things to come out of COVID. Amazing. <laughs> okay. Well, that'll no, do it. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll see you later. Thank you very much. That's, uh, <laughs> that's no, as, and as, as I was telling you uh, before we, we started rolling, this is the first guest spot I've ever done on a show. And I'm, I'm absolutely uh, thrilled that it could be for a year in horror and talking about this uh, specifically, what we're going to talk about. Same back. So like with each episode, well, yeah, with each episode of a year in horror, what I'll do is on those films, I will mention a couple of podcasts that have referenced these films and things. And I remember when I was doing some research, I came across yours and I listened to a couple of episodes. It was at a time, the newest one for you, I think was Halloween Kills. So that was, oh. a, that <laughs> we was a couple of years kind. back, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah we... it was a couple of years ago. So <laughs> yeah. it was weird when we like hooked up with this. It was like, yeah, I've listened to your podcast. Yeah, I've listened to yours. And that <laughs> lovely happenstance. That's always cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, anyway. How did you get into this thing? Were you a kid at a, a ridiculously young age? I I was. At, at one point, I was a kid of a ridiculously young age. Um, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> as, a, as a very young kid, like single digits, uh, I had older cousins who were obsessed with horror, and it terrified me. I wanted nothing to do with it. And at you know family reunions and get-togethers, all the cousins would get lumped in to sleep in sleeping bags in the living room. And me being the youngest, I had no control over what went on the television. So I, I can remember at three or four years old, like a a very cheesy Vincent Price movie, like Bloodbath at the House of Death, something like that would be on. And I'm just covering my head with the <laughs> pillow and come on, guys, can't we watch anything else? You know, but I was fortunate that my dad as a teenager, when he was growing up, he was a projectionist at the theater in the small town that he grew up in. Oh, wow. And it his employment there coincided with Universal's re-release of all the classic, you know, Bela Lugosi, Dracula, Boris Karloff, Frankenstein, all that. So he became a monster kid in his teen years. And that was sort of how he weaned me into horror. He saw how terrified I was of what... You know, my cousins were watching Phantasm and I just could not deal with it. 
so he would kind of wean me in and one honest uh honestly one of the gateways that i've i heard you talk about and you do not like this movie and i i don't understand it you're the first person i've ever (laughs) encountered who like i think maybe actively hates uh young frankenstein oh yeah oh god yeah (laughs) Yeah. That was a real tempered gateway for me because because it had the <laughs> the comedy you know undertones. But I distinctly remember in my early I would say I was maybe eleven years old. Um, we had a local video store called Video to Go, and my dad would take me there. And I and I started this. I started getting to the point where I would peruse the horror section because this is the time. I'm forty four years old, so this was a time when vhs boxes like the cover art was just uh-huh i mean it just there's anyone younger than us it's it's hard to convey to them like the magic contained in the artwork of especially a horror vhs box on a wall in a video store you know there was just and we would go to this video to go store and I, and I would pass horror and every time i passed for weeks i would see the box for reanimator and something about it just uh, maybe it was the green lettering or the tagline of you know herbert west has a good head on his shoulders and another one on his desk whatever it is and just the i'd gotten really into mad scientists i thought colin clive was so cool and frankenstein and bride of frankenstein so i would i was like formulating a plan because my dad would always take me to the video store and i would then because i was a kid i would have to give him the tapes that i wanted to rent sure so I've told this story on the podcast because it shocks me. All of the marijuana that I smoke, it shocks me that I've maintained this memory as vividly as I have. I uh, I thought I was being smart. So I, I rented a movie called The Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again, which was a... What is that? <laughs> it's, a, it's a kid's comedy starring Don Knotts and Tim Conway as two ridiculous cowboys it's like fitting for a kid growing up in the south at 11 years old then um herbie goes bananas classic it is a classic (laughs) as much as i hate to admit it it is a classic so then so the thing is you the 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 vhs boxes would have the tapes in like sort of a blank case behind them so you would grab those yeah yeah so it wasn't like, hey, dad, here's Reanimator. Look at this lurid fucking cover art. So I sandwiched Reanimator in between the Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again and Herbie Goes Bananas and just sort of thought, you know, maybe he won't even check what the titles are. So I got home. I pulled it off. I got home and. Man, this is a long story. I'm so sorry. No, no, I love it. I love it. Don't stop. <laughs> okay, okay, good. So we had a a top loading VCR in our living room, and my parents. I knew this was a, a Friday night. I knew my parents on Saturday would get up around nine a.m. So I made sure to get up around seven a.m., which was insane for me as a kid. Now, anytime I'm, not, I love. I do not get up early. But I was so excited about, like, it's that that feeling again. I wish, I wish this generation had this feeling of like physical media in the way that we had it, 
and and what it meant at that age to know that you were doing something. The internet screwed everything up for everyone. You can just stay in your bedroom and you know Live download whatever you want. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, we had to put an effort to see our first like lurid horror film. So I rem- and and this VCR was the loudest, clunkiest <laughs> mechanical contraption ever. So I remember sneaking into the living room and putting a towel over the VCR <laughs> and well. hitting eject and 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 making sure that I grabbed the top loader and slowly let it rise and I put the tape in and I I'm I'm about one inch from the TV screen because I have to have the volume almost all the way down so my parents don't wake up. I watched the entirety of Reanimator this way. Nobody walked in. Nobody. I, I was able to watch the entire film, and I was disgusted, terrified, entertained, hilarious. It was almost like when you reach that age where you start to fancy girls, you know, or whatever your preference is. Like, no, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. I sort of had that feeling with Reanimator, where I was like, "Oh, this is going to be a thing." This like. This horror section at the video store is now like, this is happening. It's just every time we yep. go. So I thought that I, and oh, and also there's like Dick. I'd never seen Dick in a movie before. <laughs> there's the, the guy, the guy that they reanimate in the morgue, uh, who I think was played by famously uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's stunt double. He's like this really jacked dude. But like, I mean, his dick is just swinging and I'm a kid. I'm like, (laughs) this is crazy. Like I can remember like falling asleep on the couch while my dad's watching a movie and like waking up and seeing like Porky's is on. So I'd seen a lot of tits, but like, I didn't know this was allowed. And then later on in the film, there's just in the morning, there's like dick everywhere. I was just, (laughs) I was fixated (laughs) on a horror movie that anyway, uh, I, I absolutely loved it. I decided, you know, right then and there that, okay, I'm over this fear that i had of horror so the the funny ps i guess to the story is i go back to bed i wake up again at like 11 a.m reading breakfast it's just um my mom my my mom is doing laundry in the basement my dad and i are eating breakfast it's quiet you know it's just a morning nothing's (laughs) strange i'm harboring this secret of this (laughs) incredibly powerful thing that i just watched that i really want to share with my dad because i know that he loves horror and he's you know tried to nurture me slowly into it so i'm conflicted and we're eating and as i'm going through this in my head my dad just kind of quietly without even looking up goes so was reanimator any good and i said uh what huh what now (laughs) and he kind of started laughing and he goes you know i i'm smarter than you think i am like i knew (laughs) i knew this time that you know this was going to happen so you know and i heard you get up and i i knew what was going on so (laughs) that night my mom that night my mom went to visit uh, a friend of hers for a couple hours so dad was like well we're we're watching reanimator together and it was i don't know it was just kind of a great moment that i'll always remember that my dad i was so nervous about hiding this thing from him and he was like you don't you don't need to hide this this is amazing like this is great welcome (laughs) yeah yeah and then i got in uh, middle school 
sixth through eighth grade, I ended up making uh, becoming friends with a kid who lived in the neighborhood, and his family's business was to be a middleman between uh, VHS distributors and the video stores. So every week at their house, they would get these huge shipments of boxes weeks before they would be released of, I mean, I mean, I, I can't, I mean, there's so much that I watched over there, the the puppet master movie, a lot of uh, Charlie band films and trauma films and stuff like that, that we would just dig through, you know, boxes that would come in the mail. And it was, I lucked out with that one for sure. And then, yeah, middle school and high school, I lived uh, a bike, a bicycle ride away from a, it wasn't a grind house, but it was the closest that we had in our small town. It was this dollar movie theater that just did, they didn't do new releases and the, you know, the place was falling apart when I ended, when I ended up getting into high school, like we got to know the people that worked there. So we could just walk in with like buckets of fried chicken and smoke joints and, you know, bring in beer and, and just have a blast. And I mean, I've, I've kept a, a list of all the great horror movies that I was able to see in this like small town grindhouse that was falling apart. Wow. Like, um, you know, army of darkness. I first saw that there. And, um a lot of john carpenter stuff in the mouth of madness i saw there which was really bizarre because the end of in the mouth of madness i don't know if you remember uh sam neill's character is sitting in a dilapidated movie theater watching in the mouth of madness yeah and i find myself sitting in a dilapidated movie theater alone watching in the mouth of madness i've i've lucked out in in, yes you have yeah yeah i've had a pretty good horror um background and it all started because my dad was so freaking cool. Yeah, I, I can't imagine like your mum coming down the stairs and it's that Barbara Campton scene or something like that. I would have been just like blocking yeah. as much TV as I could so no one else could see this. Yeah, this is yeah, for sure. This is taboo. It's crazy. Uh, the most, the most awkward I ever felt around for some reason, and maybe I was so young that like all the sexual stuff in Reanimator didn't really like click when I was watching with my dad, but I remember going to the movie theater with my dad to see Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I, over the years, I've really grown to appreciate that movie a lot more. Yeah. There's like one big issue with it named Keanu, but other than that, I think it's pretty great. But yeah, the most awkward I ever felt watching a movie with my dad was the scene where Dracula turns into a wolf and has sex with the woman on the stone slab. And right. it just seemed to go on forever. And it's just me and my dad in a theater with a bucket of popcorn. And like, yeah, so, all right. This is just going to keep going. All right. <laughs> Okie doke. This was a mistake. Uh, yeah. But yeah, my mom was never a big horror fan. We tried. There are two horror movies that I know that she loved. And they, they couldn't be more different. She was a big fan. She passed away about 10 years ago. That's why I'm speaking in past tense. Um, she she loved Scream, the original Scream. And this one really threw me. Uh, House 2, the second story. Wow. Yeah. Which I, is, I count that as horror. That oh, I do too. Horror. I absolutely, absolutely do. Um, but I didn't expect my mom... <laughs> <laughs> to like, I mean, she fucking loved House 2. 
the second story and I, I feel like i always have to do the full title of the second story <laughs> do, just because do. i i love that double entendre that's uh the second story it's the second part and it's also the house has a second so i just ian makes fun of me all the time whenever we bring up house two i'm, I'm just i don't know kind of like a kid i've mystified that like it works on so many levels. The title works on so many levels, man. He's like, hey, shut the fuck up. Stop putting there so for much a reason. <laughs> man, are you looking for a co-hosting gig? <laughs> <laughs> like the, the best I got in that period uh, was at school. Like they would send us in our final year to do some work experience. So you get I like kids wanting to go to a lawyer's office or something like that, somewhere where there's some prestige and they can sort of maybe do the tea for people or coffee or whatever. And I said, sure. oh, I really want to go to a video shop. And the best thing that happened was I got monkey shines one day before it came oh. out. And it was, nice. the, 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 I was so, I was, I would just thought I was the bee's knees. Like I had this thing in my hand. Nobody gave a shit, but I'm just like walking <laughs> back going, Oh, look at this. <laughs> so excited with myself what an idiot and there's that you, movie but, oh. well yeah i got I, just, I got lucky monkey shines is, is a terrifying movie by the way that movie still scares me <laughs> but i mean romero is one of those guys and I, I don't think i'm anything special by saying this but he's one of those guys that like i will i have a hard time ever saying that he made a bad film like i'm such a fan and uh sort of worship at the altar it's uh people get often get uh in debates with me because i refuse to i refuse to admit that romero ever made a bad film and i refuse to admit that toby hooper ever made a bad film because i mean toby hooper to me is just the bee's knees he's the be all end all he could have made texas chainsaw massacre and stopped and would still be a legend to me uh so even the lesser stuff that he did I, i still think is just so much fun to watch I get chewed out for really batting for eating alive. Uh, oh, God, like, I love eating alive. I love it, but uh, I haven't got a ton of horror friends. But the ones I do just all just think that shit. And I, I'm so across. I wrote a song about how they're wrong and that I'm right, and it's called Eating Alive, and I love that. So Yeah, I just I, I just <laughs> love that movie so much. But you're right. I think even their uh, th- those auteur directors, even when they're not firing on all cylinders, there's yeah. so much to love about all that stuff. And what and if you've Absolutely. seen Texas Chainsaw a thousand times, then yeah, I'm going to stick on Eating Alive tonight. You know, or yeah. or, or a latter day work. Why not? For sure. <laughs> yeah, and and guys like that. I mean, they they don't make them like that anymore. I think. Maybe the closest we have is somebody like Ty West, or um, I've, recently I've become a very big fan of Larry Fessenden and uh, his work, oh, Glass right. Eye Picks. I just I think he's um, it's that sort of um, you can tell they're doing it for all the right reasons. That there's a real love there, even if it doesn't, like you said, fire on all cylinders. He's that, the guy that, that did Habit. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Larry Fessenden okay. did Habit. Yeah. Uh, but he's also opened the door for a lot of newer filmmakers um, like Ty West. And, and um, I'm blanking on names right now, but his studio glass eye picks is, is really good about finding 
new talent that will then sort of he'll nurture at glass eye picks and then sort of send out into the world he's he's very good at that and he's also just if if you get a chance if anyone listening gets a chance to look up interviews with larry fessenden he's just the most aw shucks wonderful sort of um he's he's ever everything you'd want him to be and no offense to saying this about charlie band but he's sort of the antithesis of charlie band in an interview like i I love charles band and i love his work but charles band is very much like a pt barnum like a a showman with like a megaphone saying you know come over here and see the snake girl you know and the man-eating chicken and all that kind of (laughs) stuff and fessenden's way more like yeah you know i just love horror movies and I look like a caricature of Jack Nicholson and that's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's what, yeah, I think I saw him talking to Barbara Crampton in that vampire one that came out last year. Oh, um, Jacob's wife. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. 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 Yeah, He's a great, he's a really good actor too. Uh, As far as acting goes, I would recommend um, we are still here. There's a movie that he has a supporting role in. That's very, very good. It's from, it was one of my top films maybe three years ago. It's um also oh, it's quite uh, recent. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, a take on like the poltergeist type of uh situation. Okay. But I'm well, like I feel like I'm I'm doing everything to to like avoid getting to the topic at hand here. That's all right. <laughs> I'm well, just we're, rambling we're, and rambling. We're, we're still not getting there. Um I've got okay, more. I've okay. got more about you. Um, fantastic so, so <laughs> this may that may be the very best what's your history of horror movies i've ever had thank you oh. for that don't know oh, how you're gonna you. fo- don't know how you're gonna follow this up but what makes you want to do go from all that all that stuff to like laying it out there and like opening yourself up and doing this podcast knowing how much work it is myself yeah it's a it's a lot of effort for probably not a lot of reward really so like what is it that inspires you to do that well, I think like all of us who have started doing podcasts, it's the money. I mean, <laughs> yes. the money and the women. Yeah, it's, no, it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's unbelievable. I had to carve out time between orgies and delivery of gold bars uh, just to do this interview. Yeah. Um, I, that's a, you know, you sent me that question, and it's it's a really good one. Years ago, maybe around twenty ten. I started a small uh, independent film company in town here called Church of the Holy Weirdo. Okay. Which which I had sort of taken the name from a Shane McGowan song. I'm a I'm a huge Pogues and Shane McGowan fan. And he had a song called Church of the Holy Spook that I think was on Snake album, Snake with the Eyes of Garnet. Anyway, You know, I'm popping a little snippet of that in right there. That's oh, I fun. hope so. Please. Uh, any chance to get Shane McGowan played anywhere, I'm I'm thrilled. So, uh, yeah, I started this, um, and we were just going to do short films. I had a friend named Ben Smith. I don't know why I'm giving his full name. He won't, he won't matter. He won't mind. <laughs> but he and I had very similar cohesive ideas about like short film, like short horror comedy films that we wanted to make. Uh, I also went with Church of the Holy Weirdo because I live in a town called Lynchburg, Virginia. And this town is the biggest thing in this town. And what it is best known for is a guy named Jerry Falwell. Okay, I don't know the name. 
he's dead now, but his legacy lives on a insanely right wing Christian religious zealot, like right. monster. His family pretty much runs the town. Uh, there's a, a quote unquote university here called Liberty University that he founded. And now it's it, it has the town in a stranglehold and it has for years. So any chance to like play with that. So is the Shane McGowan song mixed with living in this terrible church run town, which again, going back to my youth, like I was fortunate to have agnostic parents. I think that's something that the older I get, the more fortunate I feel. Yeah. But I also didn't have a lot to rebel against. <laughs> I mean, in the town I did, but again, my parents were like there with me. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, yeah. Uh. My dad's like, you know, handing me like his old records, you know, uh, Sabbath or, you know, something like that. And I'm like, I was, ah, thanks. Bye, this I is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So Church of the Holy Weirdo, I started with my friend Ben. And most of our short films are still on YouTube, if anybody's entered. Some of them are, are fine, I guess. But the main thing that we started was uh, going back to George Romero when he put out Diary of the Dead. He did a contest for short filmmakers to send in zombie a zombie short. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we entered that. I came up with this idea, which, I don't know, I still think it was fairly clever, the idea was incredibly meta. It's a short film about two idiots who want to make movies who decide to enter this contest that George Romero is having. We both play kind of blown out versions of ourselves. I'm the like maniacal director who thinks that art, you know, we can't do this to art, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm like just torturing actors and Ben is running camera and all he wants is a sandwich that I promised him if he, helped you know that kind of thing so we have these incredibly fake zombies that we're trying to direct and they're not getting it right and as i'm yelling at them lo and behold some real zombies that look way better than the fake ones that we put together start coming in from the background and attack the crew we should have won <laughs> i even had, we we called it uh the movie within the movie was called crazy zombie king which is the worst title. I wanted to come up with the worst, cheesiest title ever. And there's a line in the, in the short film where um, Ben, we have a, a clapboard that I have Crazy Zombie King written on, and Ben goes to to clap it, and he looks at it, and he goes, Crazy crazy Zombie King? We're, we're really going with Crazy Zombie King? And I, and I look at him in, in all sincerity and go, of, yeah, George Romero is going to love that title. Uh, just the, the the silliest stuff ever. So anyway, I'd watch that it. <laughs> it's on YouTube. The well, it ended up becoming a series before we um abandoned it, but we ended up doing not bad. I think we got into like the final fifteen, maybe or ten, and so many people enjoyed it that they encouraged us to continue it because it sort of had a cliffhanger ending, and they were like, "Well, just you know, you didn't win, but we'd still like to see where the story goes." So we ended up doing like five more, I think, sort of continuing the story. And at the same time, we were doing one-off short films of kind of takeoffs of things that we love, like the scene in uh, the Twilight Zone, the movie with uh, at the beginning with Dan Aykroyd and uh, Albert Brooks yeah. when they're you know uh, midnight specials playing, and we sort of did a takeoff of that, and you know we started 
taking our stuff to um, horror conventions and did a whole, I mean, we would make lobby cards and mini posters for the short films and put them in like big envelopes that we would then hand out. It was, we, we loved it, but it never went anywhere. And that started really frustrating us because as much work as a podcast is, it's so much more yeah. for, you know, video editing and sound and, and, and all this. So Ben suggested, you know, we'd kind of just gotten burned out after a couple of years and Ben had started listening to, I didn't know what podcasts were. I'm, I'm in some ways I'm a bit of a Luddite and Ben started listening to uh, Kevin Smith's podcasts and sort of, you know, was telling me about those. And he said, you know, all we need is like uh, my phone. Yeah. And, that's it. So we need, you know, and we can just, you know, so we're hanging out anyway, talking shit. We might as well, you know, record it and put it out there. And so I was like, you know, I mean, whatever I, we, it was sort of a thing where I burned out of short films, getting us nowhere, but I still wanted some sort of creative outlet that was a little lazier, <laughs> which really? is how it started. It has grown into much more of a pain in the ass than the short films <laughs> everywhere. So Ben and I started this podcast called Dispatches from the Weird, which was just sort of, he was a big comic book guy. I was a big horror guy. We both loved movies. And it was just sort of a pop culture, everything but the kitchen sink sort of podcast. And I decided that I wanted to do more horror. Like I sort of wanted a podcast that was just horror specific because that's my passion. I'll watch the Marvel movies, but I don't really give a shit. Got it. Uh, there's there's nothing that grabs me about them really. Um, so my original idea was to have a different co-host every week. Uh, I thought that would be like a neat a niche kind of thing that there's no continual co-host. Um, and I always loved the title "We Belong Dead." I always loved when Frankenstein says that at the end of Bride of Frankenstein, "We Belong Dead." There's something very profound but flippant at the same time about yeah. that or not flipping cool. but like whatever it's a cool line right right yeah and uh yeah so i had ian be my first uh co-host and after the i don't recommend anyone go listen to the first episode but at the end of it i just i mean it was sort of kismet i said the plan was to not have a but do you want to just remain co-host because i don't think i don't think anybody else is going to have the chemistry that that we have together so yeah that was in 2015 and we've taken a couple of hiatuses here and there the past couple of years we've been pretty good at putting something out every other week and it's grown into uh, i'm still i still don't make a dime off of the podcast we don't have a huge listenership listenership i think we just do it because it's fun and i've started i've really enjoyed building a studio like i have a room at my house now that is just, it's a studio. It's all road equipment, road mics, a Roadcaster Pro, uh, you know, a, a computer yeah. just for the podcast, uh, the 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 arms that you see on, you know, podcasts on YouTube that uh, hold the mics. I kind of like building that. Uh, awesome. I'm crazy in debt over it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I can, at any point, I can just walk into my studio and record something if I want to, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, I think it's just, you know, Ben ended up getting married and we sort of, you know, dispatches from the weird sort of just fell to the wayside. 
and we belonged to, well the problem was for many years ben was the guy who did all the post-production like getting it out into the world right again bit of a luddite here i don't know how to do that so for 60 or 70 episodes the only place that we belong dead was going was apple Podcasts. we didn't know anything about libsyn or like you know how yeah. to get things on spotify or anything common like that story common story yeah that. yeah so because uh, yeah people even at the horror conventions you know we would give out cards or or dvds or whatever and you know well, where can we listen to you oh we're on itunes okay but anywhere else <laughs> uh no no why not? Do you have like a contract with them? No, no, we just don't know how to do that. <laughs> so finally, an old friend of mine, actually my my oldest friend, the first sleepover I ever went to, his dad had us all watch Night of the Living Dead, Romero's original, at a very young age, far too young age. That stuck with me for quite a while. He sort of came back into my life. We we had um, done high school theater together. We'd grown up as you know great friends. He wasn't a horror fan back when I knew him. In college, he became this great horror fan and started listening to our show and dropped me a line and was like, hey, you know, we haven't talked in years, but I love your show. And, uh, you know, I said, well, thanks. I wish you could find it somewhere else. So I kind of lamented to him. Lo and behold, he was doing this for some other podcasts. Like, it's sort of what he did. So he sort of set us up with a Libsyn account and said, you know, just give me the passwords, send me the finished product when you're done, and I'll just send it out into the world. And ten, you can get us at like ten different places now. It's like, so we've we've seen our listenership go up a bit in in the past couple of years. I'll say quite a bit. We don't have huge numbers, but considering that we were, you know. When we were only on iTunes, we were getting maybe 15 listeners a show. <laughs> yeah. It's gone up a bit from there. But the thing, I think the thing that keeps us doing it is that Ian and I just love it. I mean, it's just so much fun. If we weren't recording it, then, you know, every Saturday night, Ian would still be coming over here and we would just be getting high and sure. talking about horror movies. So we may as well, somebody's going to enjoy it, hopefully. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. But yeah, that's like I great. said, it's, it's, after building the studio and actually investing money and stuff into it, it, it has become <laughs> on that side a bit more of a headache than the short films even were, but totally worth it. And I we think... don't have any, we don't have any like uh, grandiose ideas that we're going to become some huge podcast and tour. I mean, that would be amazing. I would love to do our right. show live somewhere, but uh, we don't have, we don't, there's, there, we're not harboring any sort of uh, psychosis that that's going to be a thing. Flattery will get you everywhere with me. If I think that you want me to do something because you think I'm talented or creative, I'm going to do it, whatever it is. I, I'll end up naked in the middle of Main Street because someone thinks that that's a good idea and we'll get listeners. But uh, for three or four years, we had a, a base horror convention called Scares That Care. It was a charity horror convention. Really great cause. They don't do the con anymore, but if anybody is out there is looking for a charity that's horror-centric scares that care is legit and they're they do great work but they they invited us up to do our show live and we were like over the moon our first year doing it and we get there and they show us the the, the room that they had us in and it was this huge room they had 200 chairs set out for us and yeah. it started to kind of like kick in where we we're like i don't know <laughs> i might hyperventilate <laughs> if i walk out and there's 200 people in this room and uh, I should have known better because we we walk out to do the show and there's like 
five drunk people you know scattered throughout the room and it's just like we're trying to do the show and they're just heckling us because they don't agree with you know i think the babadook sucks and this drunk woman in the third row thinks it's the most amazing thing ever so she just takes over the podcast it was just like what were we thinking that there was going to be 200 people in here I love that. I, but, I watch a lot of red letter media and those oh, shows I do too, are yeah. there where they're, they're like doing their red letter media stuff in front of four people. <laughs> like you say, yeah. just drunk and want to get the hell out. Like, how yeah. do I get in here? Um, oh, like, I'm so glad. I don't know anyone else that, that, uh, that um, watches red letter media. I think, I think they're hilarious. Uh, I feel like they're my best friends. <laughs> right? I, I never yeah. miss anything. Um, <laughs> their, right. their newest uh, Halloween special I thought was great. They never let me down. Never. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Why not? Let's talk about Night Gallery. So we're here. Finally, we're here. Um, like I, I tell you what, I I know about it. Right. Okay. I know that Rod Serling. I know that he died really young, uh, mm-hmm. fifty, I think he was. And I know that he did the Twilight Zone. And the other thing I know was that doing this or doing some some other thing that he did just before was really stressing him out and it mm. it might have contributed to his death so that's the only sort of thing i knew before going into this as i say when it came up in my lists i had no idea what night gallery even was i didn't get that link i take it because you picked this one straight away like what's your history with this yeah, my uh, my history with Night Gallery. Well, like you said, I, I was as surprised as you were to see it on that list because I never thought of it as a film or I didn't know right. that the pilot was considered a film. But yeah, I remember the show Night Gallery uh, as a very young kid was one of those first. Uh, and it's it's not it wasn't even the show. It's one of those things where we're like, you know, I would wake up on the couch. My dad's watching TV. It's 11 o'clock at night. And. All I saw was the opening credits and the music, which is different than the pilot. music and opening credits are a little more mainstream or a little more tame right the the show itself has this bizarro music it was almost like a kolchak type of anxiety inducing like paranoia type of music with these bizarre blurred images of people in anguish and and i remember seeing that and immediately shutting my eyes and just trying to force myself to go back to sleep. I'd kept that with me all my life. I had no idea what it was from. I had looked up, like it had, it had bothered me so much in my teenage, not bothered me, but it stuck with me in my teenage years so much that once I, like computers came around, I remember like looking up weird keywords of like TV show, 70s, people in anguish in the opening credits, <laughs> weird music, and nothing was coming up. And... I think it was at Walmart one night going through the DVD section and I saw this box art with Rod Serling on the cover, just kind of standing there looking cool as shit like Rod Serling always did. Yeah. 
and it said night gallery and i was like oh well, i just i only ever knew him from twilight zone and i think maybe i knew that he wrote i think he wrote the original planet of the apes or he did like a right. copy of it or something he did a run on it but rod serling was enough for me and I, I looked at the back it's a tv show well he did the twilight zone so and i love the twilight zone so i took it home put it in the original dvds that came out in the states i think didn't have the pilot they just had you know the shows so when i put that first episode in that opening credits sequence hit and it was just out of body experience my brain exploded this is the thing that i've been searching for my whole life and i think the first episode on the dvd set was maybe the first two episodes or the first two parts of the anthology from the pilot right um so that's what i started with but yeah i just um absolutely fell in love and i found out there were two more seasons and i had to wait for those to get released and i just yeah i became a a big night gallery fan night gallery to me to this day and i again i get in debates over this i don't think it's a better or more important show than twilight zone i'm not that deluded but for me i enjoy the show far more than twilight zone uh do you think think... that's because it's more modern like like a slightly more modern feel to that I think part of it is that because uh, I I talk on my show sometimes with Ian about how there's this weird era from like 69 to maybe 74 or 75 where film looked like it's never looked before or since. It was very sweaty and colorful without reason. Uh, The color palettes were so strange and everyone's sweating and sort of has a sh- they're sort of greasy and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel good but it it's just fits that like four or five year period and i think um i think night gallery hits that right in the sweet spot i didn't realize this was 69 either i thought it was like a mid 70s show which i guess it ended up running until 73 72 or 73 yeah. but it's it's that but it's also mixed with um it's more horror centric. Twilight Zone is far more sci-fi, and I think Night Gallery is punches a little more on horror. Also, a lot of the like guest stars that, like my dad, would get excited about on Twilight Zone. Yeah, I don't know who the fuck that is, and you know, I. But you know, some of the guest stars on Night Gallery are some of my first heroes. Like Vincent Price is on Night Gallery. You know, Carl Reiner. Is on Niagara, and there may be people. I'm sure there are people younger than us who are like, I don't know who the fuck these people are. But yeah. to me, it was like Scooby Doo had the strangest guest stars, like Don Knotts and Tim Conway and Carol Channing uh, would be. And I'm like, what kid knows who the fuck Carol Channing is? Um, but it was sort of like that with Night Gallery for me, where I'm like, oh shit, that that's uh fucking Leslie Nielsen is on uh, on Night Gallery, and he's. And I always love Leslie Nielsen when he's playing a villain, which, you know, once the Naked Gun movies and all that happened. But, like, Leslie Nielsen in Creepshow. Oh, it's the best. I can hold my breath for a very long time. Oh, I just, I wish he'd done more of that. But anyway, uh, yeah, I think it's a mixture of all those things. Like the, like I said, that bizarro aesthetic of film in that in that spot of time. And being more horror oriented, they did a lot of Lovecraft stuff on Night Gallery too. And I'm a big, uh, not a big fan of Lovecraft the guy, as we've learned about his 
some of his <laughs> problems. Um, but I, I mean, you know, like any white guy my age, like I fell into the collected works of Lovecraft at some point, and I just think it's it's hard to beat. Like, Era Video just announced that they're releasing the Dunwich Horror from the seventies, and I'm like, yep, ah, <laughs> it's like one of my. Fa- it's not a great film, but it's just you know, one, but we're not talking about that. Yeah, and I also think part of the problem that Rod Serling had with Night Gallery is um, he didn't have complete control over it. He ended up not liking Night Gallery at all. He almost he pretty much became a figurehead. There was a producer, I think producer, may have been showrunner named Jack Laird, who had most of the control. And he was a character unto himself. I, I highly recommend anybody look up Jack Laird. He, he was a bizarre personality in uh in hollywood but he was also a very gruff kind of bully from what i understand right and the longer night gallery went the more you would notice that these like strange three or four minute comedy vignettes would pop in like comedy horror vignettes that just okay didn't make a lot of sense and serling hated it and that was jack laird but that's also now something that looking back on it, I'm like, sort of what I, part of what I love about it is. Was it to like extend the running time a bit? I think it was. Things yeah. Out? yeah, I think that's exactly what it was uh, because most of them weren't very funny or even entertaining, <laughs> but it's just become <laughs> such a part of what Night Gallery was, is these strange little one-off three minute like comedy bits, but there would be like a vampire comedy bit of like, you know, the vampire's at the blood bank trying to take out a withdrawal is really cheesy shit. But Caesar Romero is, is the vampire. Like it's it's so strange. So in later seasons, would Serling still be coming on at the beginning to introduce them? Yeah. Yeah. He would begrudgingly from what I understand. All right. Okay. Um, There's some interviews with him. I think like, Oh, okay. Yeah. The deeper you go in, the more, I won't say off the rails, but it just, the show definitely changes and you can see uh, Jack Laird's like stranglehold sort of getting deeper and deeper and Serling losing some of his power, which is a bummer. I, like I said, I, I love Rod Serling, but it's, it's almost, this isn't an, a, a really great way of putting this, but it's the best thing I could come up with. The original Twin Peaks series was David Lynch and Mark Frost. And right. I love that original series. I even love the second season that everybody hates. I think it's fantastic. Then you got Fire Walk With Me, which was fine. It was a a film. So, But then the Twin Peaks Return, I don't know if you ever saw it. No, I haven't. I've got it, but I don't know if I can even start that. It's so much. It is difficult. And what it needed was more Mark Frost. I think that return season was all David Lynch. And I think what made those original seasons so good was that Mark Frost kind of shoehorned this weird soap opera thing that people could relate to on top of this David Lynch fucking insano dream. And if you take that out of it, you're just left with David Lynch having 22 episodes of letting his wackadoo id run wild and i think that's sort of the role that jack laird played 
in uh, night gallery for me was that like without him i think it would have just maybe been too much twilight zone in color right and not its own thing you know because i think that i think serling always just kind of wanted to bring the twilight zone back and i think that he was hoping that's what this would be and laird was like i i don't think that's that's what this is going to be i agree i think like just from the this pilot which is like the, the movie so i know that you can you can buy a copy here and mm-hmm. i don't think it's not any longer in print but you can buy just the pilot or you can oh, buy okay. season one which is what's currently available everywhere so i got the season one and yeah. putting it in and just watching those first three in order so as the film would be it was so far removed from what I remember from just a few years ago watching The Twilight Zone. It was so different. Like yeah. straight away, I felt like you mentioned, even with the quality of the 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 print, I always thought that that period that you're talking about, because I'm so used to the BBC stuff where they would just record over things, record over them, and you would end up having a far grainier, scratchier print or, or whatever. Yeah, but that, that, I don't think it's it because you're right. It's a whole period of time that that films just look like that, or TV shows just look like that. And straight away, this looks like that. It it there's something real. I, I wish I knew the word. It's really tangible. It's like you can wipe the screen and some of this will come off. Yeah, like it would smudge. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's really strange, but yeah, yeah. I'm it, so glad that you understand different. what I meant by that. Yeah, I've tried with other people. It's not just like I said, Night Gallery, like a movie like um, Race with the Devil has a very similar sheen to it of, uh, you know, Warren Oates is constantly wet and I don't know why, but it works for this movie. A lot of like the satanic culty movies had that. Uh, The Devil Rides Out, I think I remember having uh, that kind of a gloss to it, but yeah, I'm glad you know what I mean, but I wish one of us could pinpoint. <laughs> I think it, it really, but for for those that are like massive fans of like Easy Rider, there it's definitely part of that whole look of Easy Rider as well. But yeah, as I say, I can't describe it. I can't describe what it is. But yeah, it's just that the, you get a feel from watching the stuff from this period and the tone I, I just don't know the tone of this thing was completely different from a twilight zone as well yeah what grabbed me about it what made me excited about it was seeing steven spielberg's name attached to these mm. things yeah um, so i watched that pilot and i only watched one other episode which was called make me laugh uh, because oh like, yeah that's I a like, strange one i like the amfrak song make me laugh so i was like right i'll choose that and that it was also <laughs> done by steven spielberg so yeah I haven't got as much like experience with this stuff as you, but if if you would entertain me with this, I would love to know what you think about these first three episodes. We've got the cemetery, we've got eyes, and we've got escape route. Now, I try and watch as many anthologies as I can, like on TV right now, like uh, Cabinet of Curiosities, all that sort I of thing. I need to get on that. I've heard it's great. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so I just love this stuff. And there's so many parallels with Cabinet of Curiosities as there is to Night Gallery. You would not mm. believe it. I can't wait. Oh, fantastic. Nice. Um, so um I'll probably spend all Sunday watching watching Cabinet. It's not it's not um gonna be a waste of your time, I promise you that. Um excellent. So 
Okay, so what do you think of these? Because I'm, I, I know that you said to me like you're not even a big as fan of those three as you are the others. <laughs> um, but yeah. I thought I was blown away by the cemetery. I was actually blown away by it. I loved it. The cemetery is the 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 one from the pilot that I absolutely love. I mean, Roddy McDowell playing a complete impetuous prick. Yep. Part of four. <laughs> oh my god that echoes in my head for days every time i i watch that uh episode no i have the cemetery is great i'd like i'm glad that this didn't become a reoccurring thing but i liked that they actually used the painting yep as a part of the the story i thought I, it would that would have gotten tired if if they'd done that every episode for the run of the show but i thought it was cool i thought that painting was cool and Oh man, there's a website. There's an official night gallery website now that has a store that sells like almost every print. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. And they sell three from that episode of, you know, the grave untouched, the coffin coming out, and then the the it's guy. That's great. I love oh, that. Oh man. I can't go there. I will go deeper into debt just buying night gallery. My my entire apartment will just be covered in night gallery prints. But no, I think that's great. I think Ossie Davis is amazing. It's um, interesting to watch that uh, the cemetery and uh, think of Ossie Davis years later in Bubba Hotep. Oh, yes. I wanted to mention that. I, I was like, <laughs> where do I know this guy from? <laughs> As a horror fan, we know him from Bubba Hotep. Yes. <laughs> Hello. He, of course, he's JFK, right? Of course. Of course. They dyed him that color. Uh, yeah, the cemetery, I, I don't have any um, issues with I, I think it's, and I think it's a great one to start off the run on. I mean, I have a, yeah. I just, I have a hard time not just going on and on and on about Roddy McDowell. Like, he's, like, he had a great career, but I feel like in hindsight, he's sort of unsung in, in some ways. Yeah. Um, going back this far and and when we talked about planet of the apes a little bit earlier like he's amazing in planet of the apes he's um unmatched in uh fright night yeah. i mean peter vincent i if you had told me if i didn't know fright night and you told me about that character roddy mcdowell would probably not have even been on my list of people that i would have cast but then watching the movie you're like no one even big names that i thought of that, to play peter vincent would not be, have been as good as roddy mcdowell yeah and we talk about like directors who give their all and like are in it for the right reasons i love when you come upon an actor that you feel that that same way and i think roddy mcdowell was like sort of the embodiment of the working actor um but yeah i just it's just a cacophony in my head of pontefoy or portefoy Portfolio. In this, he gives everything. Like, like it's like acting is is his whole world, and he's going to give every single trick that he's learned uh, up to now. He's just going to go full on in this thing. But the way he's dressed, it's cast in this. Like, well, actually, this is really cool. The way he's dressed, I'm like, my word, that's so uncool. And now it's cool. It's gone so far to uncool. It's cool again. Like, yeah, it, it's definitely worth a watch. It definitely yeah. holds up, and it's I actually... almost like—is it—is it almost an Austin Powers kind of look? 
Yes. <laughs> it, it, it's like he was born to do that. He doesn't look uncomfortable. He doesn't, no, no. He, he doesn't feel wrong at any point that he's doing this. And I don't know. It just, yeah, nothing about it should work. That's the thing. No. I think he's chewing, he's chewing every single bit of scenery. He's over the top to the nth degree, but it yeah. fucking works. And it's magical. I don't, there aren't many actors that, that can do that. Well, no, no, I, I agree. I think it was such a great choice to go with that first. And then we get into Eyes, which is the Steven Spielberg mm. one. And I thought, oh, this isn't going to be so good after all. Like, I wasn't that keen on this one. Yeah. Um, but I can see, like, in hindsight, like, how fans of movies are just going to flock to this because of that name. That that Steven Spielberg is one of his very first things that he's done. I think like, it may have been his first gig. I mean, you've I you've think, got to watch. I it. could you be wrong. Not, you can't not watch this. This and it's you know it's got Joan Crawford in it. And, yeah, I'm kind of predisposed to um, sort of hate Steven Spielberg <laughs> in a way, um, just because of my <laughs> it's my love of Toby Hooper and constantly oh. having to defend poltergeist which i i got to um name is a name drop i got to interview uh joe bob briggs a few years ago great and... episode great episode oh did you listen to it did you like yes it? i listened to it oh good i'm actually i'm very proud of that episode because we don't we don't do a lot of interviews but that one was just i mean this this guy is like almost god stature to me you know yeah but yeah we talked quite a bit about the poltergeist thing and I look. I know Steven Spielberg deserves every accolade, and and he's an amazing filmmaker. But there's something about <laughs> there's something that just won't let me love him as much as the rest of the world. And I think it's almost like I feel like I owe that to Toby. <laughs> it's ridiculous, okay. I know. But having said that, I I always sort of dismissed Eyes as kind of boring and slow moving. And I, I got to tell you, watching rewatching it for this episode. It's really, really damn good. Um, okay. Like the stuff that Spielberg was doing even back then on a TV show is so cinematic. Like it's the direction of that episode is far and beyond what it needed to be. And that's solely Steven Spielberg. Even what was he, 15 when he directed <laughs> whatever it is? You know, I would say an old 14. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, Joan Crawford is fascinating to me. She's one of those real life characters, especially in her later years, that just is it's she's like she's like a caricature. And I and I, I wonder with that episode how difficult she was to work with. Especially we're talking about like an inexperienced director. Yeah, she'd be like, Who is this guy telling me how to smile right now? Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I paid more attention in this time, this time around to um, Tom Bosley, who played the guy who gives up his eyes, Mister Cunningham from Happy right, Days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he's fantastic and so melancholy and sad when he's talking to the doctor about like all the wonderful things he's seen. It's and it's the saddest... I wanted more of that. That's the thing. I wanted more of that. I, I would have loved to, more to yeah. go deep into that that heartbreak that he's going for. Like, because you mentioned like uh, chewing the scenery earlier. That's such a great performance from 
from Mr. Cunningham. I was like, wow, what is this? I love when that happens too, when there's an, an actor that you associate so largely with one thing, yep. and then you see them knock it out of the park doing something completely different. And I think that's exactly what Tom Bosley did in this. And yeah, like you said, I would love to have seen more of that. Such a sad, he's I mean, like a basset hound. The sadness, you know, just, and I, it, this, I don't know how I never picked, yeah, I don't know how I never picked up on like the core sadness of when he's like talking about all the wonderful, it's all things that shouldn't matter, like gambling, like I won it, you know, won it cards this time. And I said, I'm like, that's not what you should be reminiscing about. This is so sad. And you're getting like no money for the, like in Uh within the story, you're getting, this woman has a trillion dollars and she's like i don't even remember what it was like two grand or 20 grand it was it was not enough to give up give up your eyes not at all not at all and um i I, that's one that i also love the comeuppance but the blackout when she finally gets the i just god i I, much like serling i love a good comeuppance i think it was comedian chris hardwick who said that they they should have called the twilight zone instead of the twilight zone being called the Twilight Zone, they should have called it "Nice Try, Asshole." <laughs> it's almost every episode is like this guy's going to get what's coming to him. I've just got an issue with it that, because I th- I think if he had explored those things a bit further, we could have got an hour out of that. But this isn't the the time to do that sort of thing. I don't think there's a whole ninety minutes worth of story here. But there is way more than we got. And I, I really, as I say, yeah. I just I wish there was more to this than there is. He was 21. I've written it down. There we go. He was wow. 21 at the time. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh my God. But you, <laughs> to you think can... about me at 21. No. Nope. Right. right. It's mad. Nope. Like, and as you mentioned, that whole blackout scene, that could go so wrong in so many directors' hands. So wrong. And yet yeah. it's what an ending. It's great. So I'll give him that, but I just I think it's a real missed opportunity because I I wanted so much more from that story than we actually got. Same. I won't disagree with you, and maybe it's time that you and I do a, a, a feature length remake of Eyes. I'm game. All right, I'll I'll start to I'll get to work on the outline. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done any I haven't done any films in a while, but let's see. All right, I'll see what I can do. So Esca- okay, yeah. yeah, Escape Route is the final yeah. one. Um, Barry Shear directing um what do you think of this one you know for years i would have probably said eyes was my least favorite in the uh pilot but upon rewatch i think it might be escape Mm. i don't know if maybe i'm just softening up on my grudge against spielberg in my old age but don't let that happen (laughs) keep it real (laughs) hammer that fucker into the ground (laughs) i'm the uh, that's right i called him a hack Steve, no, I would never do that. He's responsible for a lot of my childhood, as much as I hate to admit it. Uh, but not Poltergeist. So, uh, Escape, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Escape um, is just... Uh, uh, Serling, rightfully so, has a real thing about World War II. And it makes total sense. I mean, I believe he served in World War II. Aside from the ending... Which I, I love the ending of, of Escape. I think it's fantastic. I feel like he's sort of... How do I put this? He's sort of batted around this 
territory a lot in Twilight Zone. And um, even in Twilight Zone, the movie, I feel like there was a bit sure. of this. Yeah. Um, that having been said, uh, the performance of the main actor, I can't remember who it was. Uh, I should have written that down. Um, the escaped Nazi. Um, his performance is pretty wild uh, or it becomes, you know, his like unraveling. I think he handles that really, really, really well. And again, they, again, they use the painting the in the night gallery in the night gallery <laughs> yeah. for the night gallery. And it's a great painting. I love it. Yeah. I believe you can purchase it on night gallery dot whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. Something about this rewatch. This one just fell a little flat for me. I kind of felt like I was just waiting and waiting and waiting for more to happen. And then the end comes and I was like, Oh, that's because I'd forgotten how this one ended. I, I hadn't I hadn't watched this one in so long. I don't know. It just didn't make a big dent for me. And I, I don't I, I know why. I, what about I, you? Are, you seemed you when I answered when I started my answer. You seemed like you you may have enjoyed this one more. I did, but I think I did because of reasons that have nothing to do with it. I've recently <laughs> been going through video nasties, and I've just hit the the Nazi ones. So like Love Camp 7 and SS Extermination Camp and all that business. Yeah. Ilsa, she will. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I didn't mind that one. but That one isn't, that one isn't bad. I didn't the, mind Ilsa it. Movies, the Ilsa movies have some sort of weird charm, like all of them. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing is, it, they're all so gross. And then today, uh, uh, well, <laughs> today I was like, right, right. I'm going to, I watched Iron Sky just to put a bit of fun back into my Nazi. That's a, that's a weird movie. <laughs> Again, and again, I still feel a bit icky about it. But this one, it, everything felt on the right side for me. Like it made, it made a lot of. Uh, I could justify why it exists. You know. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I love the side that this is on. Yeah, 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 yeah. But <laughs> I am not. That's the thing. It was like, oh, for the record, I am not pro-Nazi. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm very wrong much podcast. against Nazis. <laughs> I did but, not yeah. vote for Trump. Uh, this, this is one of those things that I hate it when things are too heavy handed like that, when they're bashing you across the face. And I didn't think that this was. So I, I appreciated it for, for a, a lot of what it gave me. I just thought it was a little bit messy in places, especially after you've delivered part one in such a glorious fashion like that. Yeah. First part was so good. And then you get to this one, which I felt like was a bit patchy. And the second one, I just wanted it expanded a bit more. I started seeing mistakes rather than things that I was loving. Mm. Uh, I think so you may be hitting on what I couldn't put into words because right. I'm agreeing with everything you said, but maybe to just a, a, a larger degree on my end. I, I wanted the pilot to build up to something really, really great. And it almost seemed like it started with something really, really great. And then the more it went, it just sort of fizzled for me. I get it. So I think I would recommend that if you can find this pilot and it's not on YouTube. So I think you do have to buy it, but mm -hmm. I think that I, I would still recommend it, but when when you do get this thing, when you do buy a, a physical copy, you get all the other episodes. So is there other episodes? Because as I say, I've only hit one other. Are there others that you would recommend either in this se season or the later ones? There aren't many that I would actually skip over, to be honest with you. There's something, there's at least something worth watching, I think, in every episode. Also, if 
if you're overseas and have a region free player, or if you're in the US, a company called Kino Lorber recently released all three seasons on Blu-ray. And they are oh, chock chock full of special features. I think there are commentary tracks on every episode. Guillermo del Toro does a few commentary tracks. Oh wow. On it. Yeah. It well worth picking up. But yeah, I think they are region A locked. For Christmas, which... I'm getting a region free player. Like I, nice. I, I, I spent I spent so much money on getting like this pristine 4K thing, and like I can watch all my old Blu-rays, all that, and then it wasn't re- region. Lo- it was region locked, and I was like, oh yeah. man, I've got like so- a stack of stuff. Like um, I watched. I love this thing called V from the 80s, like science. Oh, fiction. the Alien show. Yeah, yeah I love it. Robert and England. It's- Yes, it's all it's all region one locked. And oh, wow. oh man, <laughs> yeah, I felt so liberated when I got a region free player. I could finally like pump money into Aero Video. <laughs> I can only imagine like that. Oh, the wealth of stuff because like there's also like sorry, I know we completely got off tangent, but I love all the the like boutique labels you can get in america i know we're lucky over here as well i want some severin stuff i want some of that stuff. oh yeah severin and vinegar syndrome over here are are kind of doing what uh they're doing uh, the arrow and um they are doing the lord's work you guys also have like indicator series yeah yeah which is fantastic you, you have some really great i think it's it's sort of the grass is always greener sort of thing so i'm like well yeah we have scream factory but who gives a shit you guys have arrow. <laughs> yeah, I have an entire shelf that's just arrow video and indicator and uh you know, so I can't remember powerhouse, a bunch of other ones, but uh anyway, back to uh yeah, some some episodes. Uh I tried to cuz if I if I went through the list of all the episodes, I would just end up listing all of the episodes. <laughs> so I tried to just go by memory. There's an episode in season one called The Housekeeper with uh, Larry Hagman, who was on a TV show in the 80s called Dallas. He played JR. Amazing. Okay. Uh, He's another one of those kind of underrated uh, 70s actors, I think. But it's a whole black magic thing where he's sort of dabbling in black magic to (laughs) transfer his house. He's in love with his housekeeper. So he's trying to transfer her soul into his wife's body and his wife is a total bitch. And it's just, of course, everything falls apart for him. The The episode from season one that everybody loves that is a little too schmaltzy for me, but I thought I would include it just because everyone other than me seems to think it's like a, a high watermark for the series. I think it's a little too Twilight zone It's called They're Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar. Right, okay. And it is good. It's well made. But it's just very, like, it's just very schmaltzy. Of, you know, it's this guy who, like, all of his good times happened in this bar. And they're shutting it down, but and it's all boarded up. But like he's passing by one night and hears people, you know, partying inside. So he walks in and it's like it was 20 years ago, and all of his old friends are there. And but they're not real. It's just, I don't know. I've had enough. I've had enough of that kind of thing. You've got such a black heart. A black <laughs> I really heart. do. I really do. I applaud at the end of the mist. That's uh. <laughs> <laughs> everyone in the cinema is weeping and you're like yeah. i'm like uh max katie and cape fear when he's with the big cigar <laughs> laughing at problem child <laughs> that's how i like to see myself but in honesty in in all honesty i'm probably more like the uh 
the fat bully kid from The Simpsons who just stands up and points and goes, ha ha. <laughs> anyway, season two, moving on to season two. Uh, John Badham directed a great episode starring Clint Howard called The Boy Who Predicted Earthquakes. Nice. Highly recommend. Uh, season two had a lot, so I won't go too in depth with them. One of the short films, funny short films, start these start up in season two, I believe. And there's one called Phantom of What Opera that stars Leslie Nielsen as the Phantom of the Opera, which is something to behold. Uh, is he is he playing a bastard in that, or is he a, a good guy? No, he's just a a comedic, silly version of the Phantom of the Opera, and it's so strange. Class of '99 is a great one with Vincent Price. Now I have to find. Now I have to find season two. Well, you know, yes, you do. <laughs> Question of fear is one of my favorites. Again, Leslie Nielsen is in this one, and he actually does play a, a, an absolute bastard. He's like a big game, like former military big game braggart, and his friend. He and his friend start talking about this haunted house, and his friend bets him that he can't spend a night in the haunted house. And uh, I, those are stories I love, like old yep. dark house, haunted house stuff. And that's a great one. Uh, Big Surprise is a short one. I think it may be one of, well, no, it's, it's certainly not one of, but John Carradine is in it, who was kind of like old school horror. It's a short one that's really funny about kids who dig a tunnel. Carl Reiner is in a great short one called Professor Peabody's Last Lecture. And it's just off the wall, Lovecraft. Yeah, Professor Peabody's last lecture is Carl Reiner, who's typically a, a comedy guy. He plays a professor at Miskatonic University, and he's he thinks that the uh, Necronomicon is rubbish. So he starts like reading aloud from it to his class, and the world just starts falling apart around him. It's it's so great. Uh, in season two, they do their version of Pickman's model. The uh, Lovecraft story, right? Okay, that they did, in which that I've heard is in Cal- yeah. yeah, and I think am I right that Crispin Glover, yep, plays pick. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is what I'm doing tomorrow. Green Fingers is a really good one. It's one of the final roles of Elsa Lanchester, who played uh, Brad Frankenstein. Uh, she's like a, a very old woman in this one, and it's uh, kind of the classic story of uh, you know, big business wants to buy this little old lady's house to plow, you know, to bulldoze and build condominiums and she just won't sell another highlight of that one is cameron mitchell stars in it and i just man i'm cameron mitchell is yeah he's like the epitome of that look we were talking about of those years (laughs) in the 70s that is cameron mitchell it it is there's another famous one from part from season two is called the caterpillar and i just i'm just gonna leave it at that i'm not gonna ruin anything because there's there's a lot going on in that one all right and then i just have four I have four from season three. Well, before before we go season three, is, is the quality um, on season two with regards to production bu- budgets and things like that, has that changed or, or is it pretty level? Pretty consistent, I think. Yeah. Okay. I think like the um, budget probably never got higher than the pilot, but it, there's not a there's not a large dip. You certainly don't see it season to season as like, you know, they're cutting the budget. So like with V that I mentioned earlier, like you can tell uh, each, each season. Yeah. I, okay. Sorry. I interrupted. No, it's fine. Uh, I've, all I've been doing is rambling. I absolutely loved V when I was a kid, by the way. I need to revisit it. Revisit it. Uh, <laughs> Please. I may as well have smoked weed. I don't know what. <laughs> 
How could you imagine? We'd still be back at my <laughs> history with my my background on horror. Uh, season three, Vincent Price shows up again. Thank God uh, for an episode called Return of the Sorcerer. Uh, he's like a, it's an occult thing with um, the guy that played Bruce Banner in the original Incredible Hulk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or David Banner, Bill Bixby. Vincent Price, Bill Bixby, he plays a sorcerer. It's one of my favorite episodes of the whole show. The Girl with the Hungry Eyes is a really good episode. It's about a model who might be a phantom. Is she real? I don't know. Uh, John Aston stars in it, and I always love to see John Aston, uh, the original Gomez Adams. Uh, then The Other Way Out. A murderer is on the run and finds what he thinks is uh, safety at a farmhouse, but there may be more to it than you think, murderer guy. There is bound to be. I bet there is. Uh, Yeah, and then there's one called Fright Night, oddly enough, called Fright Night, that's about a couple that inherits a house that ends up being haunted, and it's just a really... It's not that scary. It's just kind of one of those fun ones. They're the good ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I've got for for favorites. I'm sure you just wanted like two from each season, but season two, I just could not uh, dwindle down. Well, well, from just you saying that, now one of my first purchases when I get my multi-region is going to have to be that, isn't it? I've got no choice now. Well, yeah, sorry. Your work here is done. (laughs) Um, But before we go, I would love to know, if you're going to put something together with this, I'd love to know, uh, from you just another anthology movie that you would actually recommend it pairs nicely it's meant a lot to you we've already mentioned creep show so let's avoid mm. that let's avoid that okay. where else would you go i mean like you you said earlier that you're like a big anthology horror fan i i, I am the same way in that i i can even really enjoy a bad anthology horror film at times mm-hmm. yeah uh there's only one that i've seen that i think that i like fundamentally angry <laughs> at have you seen verotica oh the, the... danzig yeah no i haven't i've seen people talk about it <laughs> yeah i i just wouldn't if i were you it's such a slap in the face i just I, i'm a big misfits fan danzig era graves era I, I like the whole shebang i got no problem with any of the entirety of the misfits but if you tell me that Glenn Danzig is going to make an anthology horror film, in my head, it's going to be one of the greatest things yeah. ever done. Because yeah. if if anyone could do it, it would be him. And he lets you down on every single aspect that he possibly could. It's so bad. So not Veronica. Let me just I mean, get this right. So you've gone for Veronica. <laughs> oh, man, you're going to edit this, aren't you? <laughs> I happen to love Verotica. Um, I, I mean, Amicus is really hard to beat. You guys really yep. sort of uh, the anthology thing. And I I mean, you put anything that says Amicus on it in front of me, I'm going to watch it. I love it. Uh, Torture Garden I recently saw for the first time. So Great. good. Dr. Terry's House of Horrors is amazing. Uh, I'm trying to narrow this down. There's even some weird ones in the 80s, like Cat's Eye. The Stephen King anthology film. I, for some, I love that. For some reason, I love that. A Smokers Incorporated one. Oh, oh, oh my word! Yeah, yeah, great. That one gets me in the one where where the guy has to walk around the outside of the it's brilliant high rise. Oh, and there's like some more weird stuff like uh, 
Udo Kier and Theater Bazaar, like newer stuff, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, it's even something terrible like Night Train to Terror, I think is great. Body Bags, yes. I'd love. I, just, I mean, I really just listen. But if I'm going to pair Southbound, have you seen Southbound? It's a newer one. That's great. Uh, yeah, Fessenden produced that. Yeah. Uh, and he's he plays the uh, voice of the DJ uh, throughout the movie. Okay. Yeah. If nothing else, I hope that you do sort of a medium dive into Larry Fessenden after this. Anyway, also the Tales from the Crypt TV series was like one of the biggest things for me when I was a kid. The HBO series with the animatronic Crypt Keeper. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, I recently started watching that. And I put that to bed because I then got into the the other one, which is the, oh, what's it called? A something of horror. Um, it came out in like two thousand three, two thousand four. Oh, um, uh, Masters of Horror. Yeah, and I'm so. Some of those that. are amazing. Some yeah. of those are so. The John Carpenter segment on that one, uh, cigarette it's burns. No, oh, it's great, 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 it's, great. I think it's one of the best things he's done in his career, and it's this. TV episode. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, sorry to interrupt yet again. Sorry. No, no, I'm I'm right there with you. Um, but okay, so if I I, I wanted to go kind of left of center, um, to pair something with the pilot episode of Night Gallery, and I'm going to go with a movie I think came out last year called The Mortuary Collection. All right. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. I think while it doesn't have that aesthetic thing that we were talking about in recent years i think it's the closest it's come the closest to to being able to capture that and i just think that the wraparound is so good is. on that i'm a sucker for a good wraparound and i thought it can save a shitty anthology film for me if the wraparound is great uh, and i think the mortuary collection is one of the best wraparounds and i love clancy brown is so freaking cool and I, I like to think, I don't know this, but I like to think that he's doing a bit of an homage to Angus Scrim from Phantasm in that role. I can see that. I um, see and I, I think the segments are great. They range from like fun to genuinely kind of terrifying to hilarious. Yeah, the Mortuary Collection is one of the all, one of the more all around really fun anthology experiences that I've had in recent years. Southbound is is close, but uh, I think more people need to know about the Mortuary Collection because I could. Say, I mean, like Trick or Treat is fantastic, but everybody knows and loves Trick or Treat. Got it. I'm going to put something out here. Yeah, you you started this conversation talking about a lot of dick. Now you've ended with maybe a classic, the classic dick segment. Oh, that's true. That is true. <laughs> Wow, what's going on with me? It's just my life is just full of dicks. Well, to be uh, fair, we were talking about my childhood, which was just filled with cock. <laughs> Sorry to go there. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great choice. It, it's really recent as well. And yeah, I think it had, when it first came out, tons of people were talking about it, but that conversation dropped off quick. Yeah. yeah I also like the juxtaposition of um, old and new. Like any Amicus film could pair with this pilot. Or, you know, a lot of things from that era, but I like the idea of watching this pilot from 69 and then watching something from 2021 that's, that's cool. I think, on par with, with you know, or, or maybe sort of carried on the tradition in a really good way. Do you have one? 
Yeah, I'm going to go for an amicus. I've gone for Asylum. I don't know why that one tickles me like it does. I think, again, it's so important to have a good wraparound, and and that one does for me. And it was one of the first ones I bought when I got into the podcast where I was just like, what's amicus? What the hell are they doing? Yeah. You know, it just opens up this like, wow, look at all this stuff. So, yeah, Asylum for me. Um, Hey, Lono. Thank you very much for coming on. But I've got to ask you, um, yes. I know you're incredibly busy with what you're doing yourself and your podcast. I know the effort that goes into these things. But if I ask you in a few months uh, just to come back on, uh, I want to get it on record. You want to come back on? My friend, it would be an absolute pleasure. This has been honestly the most fun I've had in a long time. Just talking shop with uh, a fellow horror geek. And like I said, I think... Uh, a year in horror is probably the the best thing that could have ever come out of something as horrible as a uh, pandemic. Even if you've had to miss out on some uh, music, uh, I, uh, I I urge everyone to uh, continue listening to a year in horror. I love that you're pulling things out of a hat or whatever too. Like, yeah, man, you're not I just going that. chronologically. That I think that would get boring if you're just in. You know, we're doing sixty nine. So next week we'll do seventy, and then we'll do seventy one. I love that we can go from yeah. like, you know, talking about Night Gallery from '69, and then you know, you know, next week could be 1987, and you know, like, I love it. I love. It. I get yeah. excited, and that's the thing. When I'm the only one I didn't get excited was when I pulled out the the 20s and 30s ticket. Because that could be difficult. Yeah, that was homework. It really was. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I still found. I, no, I will say this about any year or any decade that the. The creme de la creme is great when you discover it, but the best thing is when those undercards where no one's talking about them, and then whoa, that's amazing. Yeah. When you find one of them, oh, it makes it worthwhile. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and your podcast is exactly what that is to the podcasting world. Dude, thank you very much <laughs> for coming on. Anytime, sir. Thank you. So many thanks again. That was Lono from We Belong Dead podcast. Hello there. I've just broke the also rans halfway through. The concluding part is going to take place tomorrow.